Hey everybody, welcome to Stuff Said. I am Greg Shegel. I am a cartoonist, and on this show, I talk to people in the worlds of comics, cartooning, and beyond. Before I talk about what's happening on this episode, I want to talk about what happened on the last episode. Robert Kirkman, Part 1, K-U-R-K-M-A-N, released on April 1st. Yes, it was an April Fool's episode. If you did not listen all the way to the end, that was not Robert Kirkman. That was a make-believe version of Robert Kirkman. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed putting it together with the, with the team I worked with, and I want to thank them. They know who they are. They like the anonymity of not being known. So thank you for the help. I also want to thank... Well, I'll get to the next thanks afterwards. I will thank... Oh, so many things to thank. Things. People. People to thank. I want to thank everybody that wrote after they heard it to say whether they were duped or not or when they were duped, etc. Thank you for checking in and letting me know that you enjoyed it or, or, or were just like confused or whatever it was. I love the feedback. The last person I want to thank is the actual Robert Kirkman. K-I-R-K-M-A-N, who is the guest on this episode. It was, if you heard at the end of last episode, there's a bit of an audio clip of myself talking to Robert, asking permission to do this foolish thing we did, and he had very nice things to say about the show itself, which I will admit to being slightly concerned with because we said things that were completely not true. And said it as him, or a version of him, K-U-R-K. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Robert was awesome in sort of just giving us free reign to use his name, which is ridiculous, and his career. I want to do a couple of plugs up front. I have a book out. It's called Picks, One Weirdest Weekend. Please consider ordering it through your local comic shop or directly from pixcomic.com, P-I-X-C-O-M-I-C.com. You can read the first chapter of the book absolutely free at that website. And I also want to encourage, if you enjoyed last episode especially, but if you enjoy the group episodes of Stuff Said, where it's me and Chris Giruso and Brian Smith and Jacob Shabbat and the antics of that, check out my other show, Cruising Together, where Chris Giruso and I discuss, in a manner of speaking, the filmography of Tom Cruise. Okay, back to this Robert Kirkman show. Robert Kirkman, the real one, is the guest on this show. Came about awesomely. He heard my episode with Ryan Otley, his artist on Invincible. In that episode, at some point, I believe I said, I'd love to talk to Robert. And he emailed me and said, I'll totally do your show. So we worked it out and... I went to his secret headquarters. I was greeted by a couple of dogs. That's relevant to just how the, the show starts when, it, when I play the conversation. But I feel like it's important to point out <laughs> this is a long conversation and we cover a lot of ground. And only a fraction of that is walking dead talk. So <laughs> if you are tuning in because you love the walking dead, I will, I'm giving you a warning right now. I don't think you'll be disappointed because it's a really interesting conversation, 
but you will be disappointed at how little we talk about The Walking Dead. That said, we talk about comics a lot. We talk about making comics. We talk about the business of comics. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that we get into. Real talk, as it were, with the real Robert Kirkman. And this is a great conversation. I think we both had... Well, we had a lot to say, and now you get to hear it. So enjoy this. It's just just a hair over two hours, and then I'll have more stuff to say at the end because that's uh, that's always what I do. All right, here it is, me talking to Robert. Why heat vision of all the superpowers to name a dog after? Well, that's not my dog. Okay. It's actually uh, Corey Walker's dog, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> but my favorite thing in the world is uh, people that, you know, meet the dog, and it's like, yeah, this is heat vision, and they're like, okay, all right. That's See, uh, it's my, a little weird. My question was, was there another dog named Jack? Yeah, I believe it is a reference to heat vision and Jack, the amazing much. pilot. Which was amazing. And you have some affiliation with that Channel 101 stuff, or you just know guys that I know there? Justin Roiland and... I've met Dan Harmon, but uh, it was, a was there of my a big life. beard competition on the, with you guys? No, no, we were both on what's that G four? Is that Attack, Attack of the, the show? show? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, and we had a nice, nice little green room chat. Okay, but, he uh, seems kind of awesome. But yeah, no, he seems you know I I, I like him a lot. He uh, seems like he's a lot more socially conscious than than I care to be. <laughs> you know, like he actually says things sometimes where I'm like, oh, you like put thought into that, and you're trying to be a nice guy. All right. So then your dog is Izzy? Uh, yes. Is that short for anything? Dog is Izzy? No, no. But I, I'm very proud of this. My kids named the dog Izzy, which I don't like really because I, I'm pretty sure that's the mascot of the Atlanta Olympics from like 19. Because <laughs> it was like this weird like blue shape with like a lightning bolt on it and like yeah. crazy colors. And it was what is it is what it was called. Okay, that would be 96. It, they called right? it Izzy for short. Yeah. And so that's all I think of when they call the dog Izzy. And so uh, they started calling it Easy Busy because I have a daughter and they do things like that. So then I took that and turned it into the business. So I call nice. the dog the business, that's, which I which I like. That's a terrific name for a dog. I'm, I'm all for it. So, but then I get to hear my son go, what's up, the business? <laughs> and that always cracks me up. No, no association with the Atlanta Olympics that way. So that's good. Well, although the Atlanta Olympics had their own business explosions and such <laughs> sure let's talk about that I, what do i remember about the atlanta olympics was that the debut of the dream team we first had any sort of association and you there's no way you can remember this oh, I, I, I mean i don't remember exactly which convention it is but i know that we have been uh we've been in each other's presence a few yes. times yes and you, you you're very good at giving the business very quickly <laughs> uh, the, okay, I, I may not remember this. Please, well, no, it wasn't. On. It wasn't anything bad. Like there was one instance <laughs> when I had first started this show. You would come by, and I think I reintroduced myself. I'm like, oh, I have this podcast, and you're like, oh yeah, I know. Like you do? You're like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like that sort of a thing. But before that, I think it might have been. Oh wait, it was a yeah. Heroes Con, and we were being introduced around, and I was introduced that I used to be an assistant editor at Marvel. Yes, and you're like, when was that? I said 98 to 2000. Like, why didn't you hire me? <laughs> and I was like, what, huh? So this actually leads to my first question, which is what uh, were you sending to Marvel and or DC or anywhere else? Well, before we get to that, okay. I just want to say that I am uh, I'm an expert at first impressions. <laughs> 
it was have this a... thing in my brain that makes me like want to be memorable. Yeah. And so I end up sounding like a jerk all the time, which is not the best. Well, according to Jason Howard, the first thing I said to him was something about would he ever leave Wolfman to do work at Marvel? So I wasn't doing much better. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. I, when I met Jason, I don't really remember this, but he was a guy that came up to me at a convention and had a portfolio he wanted to show me. And I think he might have just given me an invincible pinup or something. But I looked at his art and I said, oh, oh, you don't suck. Great. <laughs> because, you know, you get those people at conventions where oh, yeah. you're like, hi, how are you? And you, don't have, you have nothing to say to them because it's <laughs> terrible. But, yeah, back in 2000, I actually wasn't – I wasn't – I think I was one of those guys that I didn't ever really submit to Marvel or DC because I – had been I'd had it kind of drilled into me that that's not really how you get work there, so I never really sent them submissions. I was probably just being a jerk to okay. you, and I was like, "Why didn't you hire me?" Well, I, I was like, sure. "Why didn't you find me on a message board and in your esteemed position yeah. as an intern uh, get Tom Brevoort to give me a job?" Yeah, at this point, I was Tom's assistant, so yeah. I, I did have some slight power. I like Tom Brevoort as much as I hate Marvel. <laughs> That seems, I feel like that, uh, Tom is, Tom was great. I loved working with Tom, uh, and he was on this show, so people can go listen to that two and a half hour epic conversation. I should listen to that one. I haven't heard that one. But yeah, I was working with Tom at the time, but then I did the timeline of of when Battle Pope happened, that was 2000, so I was already gone. Uh, I left in January 2000, right when they were coming out of bankruptcy, right when everything started to get better. I got the hell out of there. Although, better should be in quotes, because that was the Bill Jemis transformative years. Yes. So that's questionable. It was like everybody was fearing for their jobs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So that was our first sort of exchange. My first experience with your work was Chris Russo handing me stuff. And one of them was Cloudfall, which, <laughs> I, honestly, I barely remember it. That is, a, that is, a, that is definitely the intro uh, to my work that I wish everyone would have. <laughs> But then, it's a good book. It's not bad, but whatever. But I was visiting him, and he handed me Invincible Trades. And I read the first one, and then the second one was the one that really sort of nails it. Cause Starts that, a little slow, I'll that be That seventh issue. So here's a question about that. Yeah. So I've heard you talk in interviews about how Invincible started out okay to Rocky and sort of could have gone south. Yeah. But then you got an option for it, and that helped sort of right. lift the tide. Was that option the thing that made you go, let's push the twist to seven? No, no, no. It was actually, uh, I have to give credit to Jim Valentino because the twist was supposed to happen in issue 25. <laughs> that was when, That's ambitious. That was, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know if we'd make it there or not, but, you know, I felt like, you know, there was a lot of story to tell before I got into the nitty gritty of, oh yeah, his dad is evil. You know, I wanted people to get to know his dad a little bit more. And so, I mean, it was two things. It was Eric Stevenson kind of pointing out to me, like, just what an atomic bomb that end of New Mutants 100 was. And he was kind of commenting on just how good Rob Liefeld actually is at plotting comics and how he doesn't really get credit for it, you know, because, you know, you've introduced Cable in issue 87. And, right. you know, Cable's this dude that's fighting this guy's strife and, you know, there's all this, you know, crazy stuff going on and it's kind of transforming the book and you're leading into this big launch on X-Force where they're rebooting everything. And for his, like, swan song on New Mutants, the main bad guy takes his helmet off and is Cable. Like, you're like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Like, how is, like, this is the most intriguing thing in the world. And so, you know, I was like, well, actually, 
actually have something like that. Like I, you know, like, you know, Nolan is actually like a bad guy. Like I need to get to that. And I was telling Jim Valentino, like, yeah, we're going to do it in issue 25. And, and Jim goes, uh, I don't know if he said it quite like this, but he was like, kid, it's not going to be an issue 25. <laughs> Why don't you do that now? Like yesterday. So I ended up uh, it, putting it in issue seven. Yeah, because I which was look- really should be the end of the first trade. Like, if I could go back in time, right. I would make issues one through seven, volume one, and issues eight through thirteen, volume two. But right now they encompass three volumes, which is really awkward. And well, I'm just, sure there's a lot of people that buy Invincible Volume One and they're like, "This was cute." It's just it's impressive considering. I remember Thunderbolts number one, for example. Like the twist is on the last page, and that's the thing that's supposed to hook you and keep you coming back. Right. And you waited seven months. Or we're going to wait two years. Yeah, it was stupid. It's <laughs> no, I mean, one thing that I will say about my career is I have learned to write while writing in the public eye. Like if you look at my work, like I do feel like when you look at early issues of Invincible versus stuff now, and it's like, oh, this holds together better, and it seems like he's setting things up more. And so I back asked, then, I was just like, I don't know, this is cool. So I ask this of artists all the time, which is as you're drawing and doing sketches, you sort of feel these level-up moments. Like when you figure out how to draw hands, you figure out how to draw a face from a certain angle, whatever. Do you Can you think of any level-up moments you had writing issues or whatever that made you... Yeah, Not I really. It. I mean, it's a much no. It's a much like weirder process. I know that, you know. I, I don't like. I don't ever really finish a script and go, "Oh, that was awesome." <laughs> I'm so proud of that. That was good. Like usually, the sentiment when I finish a script is, "Oh, that's over. I'll do better <laughs> next time." And it's funny because there are the odd issue where I'm like, "Oh, that that one that one turned out pretty good. That one's going to be really cool. People are going to like that." And the people hate it. They're like, "Oh." This book has taken a turn, you know, and then there's there's a uh, there's been a few times on various books where I've written issues where I'm like, well, this is the one where they're going to find me out. Like, that's really going to be like loud and clear, plain as day. This guy should not be doing this. And then I see reviews and stuff on message boards where they're like, best issue in a long time. Reminded me that this book was still good. I'm like, Jesus, I have no idea what I'm doing. But anyway, I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I don't, I don't think I ever really have recognized any moments where I've been like, I'm better now. But I mean, there are definitely times where I think, like in my head, I'm like, I didn't used to consider the things that I'm considering now, you know? So I kind of notice, like, I don't know, just being a little bit more aware of how you can drive audience perception on a character and, you know, whether you, how, you know, like, I, I feel like I'm a little bit more focused on being able to make them like what they're doing in certain moments and hate what they're doing in certain moments and feel endeared to them in certain ways and feel invested in them in certain ways. Right. So I feel like I'm getting a little bit better at that. And do you find that happens more in any particular book? Like Walking Dead is much more of a character driven in a relationship thing. Whereas not that that's not an invincible because it certainly sure. is, but there's a, there's a much, there's a steam engine that's running invincible where really well, in terms of like way. you bring in, different villains and different villains can create a different dynamic or you can team him up with different superheroes and stuff. It's definitely a different kind of story because it's a superhero thing. So there's different stuff going on, but I I try to avoid plot at all times. I mean, it just, it sprawls much more than walking dead. Walking dead is is very contained within the experience of these characters. Yeah. I guess the, the story of walking dead in my head is like a little bit more linear. It's like a group of characters, like going on an adventure and invincible is a little bit more like a web. I mean, when you consider the robot storyline, and this will spoil it for people, but sure. I mean, 
you know, maybe it'll the, make them want to read the book. <laughs> okay, that sounds interesting. I should try this comic. So that starts getting set up in the storyline that Ryan and, and Corey did, where you split up the artwork. And well, that's have, actually a callback because it gets set up like twenty issues before that, when or like ten, or I don't know, I don't, right, <laughs> I don't remember numbers, but yeah, like Robot and Monster Girl go into a portal, right, and then like twenty or fifteen issues later, they come out of the portal, right, and then a bunch the of issues later from the portal attack them, and then that's when it flashes back to what happened to them in that other dimension, right. But then it, it's still a little bit longer before Robot flips the game. Yeah. And takes Invincible out of the world, and, and it, it just gets haywire. I, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, if you do actually track, like, all the different beats of various storylines in Invincible, a lot of, most of them span, like, 50 issues. <laughs> it's impressive. Because you're also doing a nice job of not letting us forget, like, when the twist happens or when the change happens. You're like, okay, I remember. It's, you're not lost. Yeah. Which a lot of comics I get lost in, maybe because I'm an old man. I don't know, but... They don't do enough. They don't do a good enough job reminding you of who everybody is. I do my best to make sure. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's like a th- thousand people in that book, so yeah, <laughs> you know, if I, I, you know, I feel like it's it's a little bit easier to do a subplot and drop it for ten issues and then pick it back up in a way that's going to re- make you remember that last thing than it is to do like a little snippet of a story in every issue and expect people to follow it. So. You know, I feel like remembering something that happened two years ago is a little bit easier than following something that you get in a breadcrumb every week. On. Right. And then again, you remind somebody right. through exposition or, or what have you. Through and, really clunky, like annoying but uh, it works in 80s comics. Marvel style uh, exposition. Like, yeah, okay. So it's annoying Marvel style, but it in comics it works. Like that's the language right. of comics. You can't do that on, you can't have a character say that on a TV show. It sounds idiotic. I've gotten those notes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But in a comic, it works. And I right. find I get frustrated when comic book writers ignore that tool. Yeah. Because it's not realistic, quote unquote. It's like, I well, do my best to make it as realistic as possible. But, you know, there are there are moments where you have to make that decision. Do I want this to sound really good or do I want my audience to know what the fuck is going on? Can we yeah. cuss here? I don't know. Yeah, you can, uh, you can say whatever you want. It's free. Great. So, yeah, it's like I, I, I guess this panel is going to be a little clunky. Well, you do, I will say, there's definitely a, a Robert Kirkman, I don't think trope is the right word, but you do have those giant balloons with just a ton of tell, words. Let me them. tell you the story behind those giant balloons. Okay. I was talking to Larson one time, and, and I was complimenting him, because I was like, you know, I, I love the fact that 90% of the comics you've done in your career start with a splash page and a two-page spread, because by the time I'm actually slowing down and reading dialogue and looking at panels i'm on page four so i'm like totally already invested in what's going on it's like a big punch two page spread sets up the scene and you know you're like what the hell's going on and then by page three or four you're like okay i I, i'm finding out more information this is great and it's like a very fast intro to a comic that kind of slows down when you get into it and then i was like you know by contrast like todd mcfarlane does these opening pages where you just want to die (laughs) That okay. slow build. I'm doing a thing, and this is happening, and we're going, the, uh, and it's just painful. And he was like, yeah, Todd does that deliberately. Like, we've had arguments about this where he's like, you know, the, the reader wants their money's worth, and, and they, they, they want a lot of information, and they want it quick. And then once you give that to them, you can slow things down and do some more action-y stuff. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, historically, Todd McFarlane comics... 
outsell Eric Larson comics. <laughs> so uh, maybe I'm doing things a little wrong. And so when I started Walking Dead, this was a little bit before I did that series, I said to myself, you know what? I am going to try and put as many words as possible on these pages. And if you look at the early issues of Walking Dead, some of it is insane. There's like five panel pages where like there's like four word balloons in every panel <laughs> and some of them are gigantic and it's just like, what are you doing? But that's my most successful thing ever. So the you evidence know, sort of as, speaks to as, it, yeah. as weird and as clunky and, you know, as that actually is at the end of the day, I'm like, Jesus, is that like a thing? People really want more words. Is it really that simple? I guess it, it, it guess depends the story you're telling. But it's funny because Jason Howard was doing that code blue yeah. in the back of, of Wolfman, and I remember commenting to him like, "You're doing some really dense like these. You're packing a lot in these balloons. Like I know Robert does it, but I don't know if it's quite like there's a. But he was telling such a complicated story in four page chunks. Definitely ambitious. Yeah, highly ambitious. But I talked about that with Jason, yes. so we won't get into it. No, I'm going to ignore that part. Okay. I'm going to pretend I remember that story. I'm so, kidding. I remember that story. So I want to go farther back in your in your pre-career. Great. Uh, or, or sort of pre-career. I want to know, you don't have to show any of it to me, but is the book you submitted to Diamond that's the worst thing ever, was that the thing called Between the Ropes? Yeah, it was the thing called Between the Ropes. What is that about? Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about it. Okay. Uh, so allowed. Between the Ropes was a comic that I drew. And <laughs> I, I actually had this thought because I always, I always try to think of an angle on everything I do. Of course. So like with Walking Dead, I was like, look, there's never been a story where they've actually followed characters through the apocalypse long term to see like how they continue to live. And with Invincible, I had some kind of angle. I think it was like there's not a lot of teen superhero comics. And I always loved like Robin and New Warriors and stuff like that. And there wasn't anything around 2003 or whenever that launched and the angle on between the ropes was you know it was like 1998 99 when i started it wrestling was enormously popular possibly more popular than it's ever been and it doesn't seem to have died down since i, I don't get it to be honest I think. but that was that was the era of the rock right so that was huge i think it was like either like post rock or maybe it was yeah it was like around yeah, that time i was already i think it was when then. he was already he had just started doing movies at that point okay. so it was like the tail end to him that was after my wrestling years yeah, this was like Scorpion King era, right. I believe. <laughs> Fantastic movie. But anyway, so I was like, you know, wrestling's super popular, but like I kind of want to know what's the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like there really should be a reality show that's like just behind the scenes where they're writing scripts and they're talking to the wrestlers and they're choreographing moves and all the like deals and stuff that go on. And so Between the Ropes was, you know. That stuff. Yeah, it was like the behind the scenes, like them negotiating who's going to win a match, and it was them whispering to each other while they're wrestling, and you know, I, it was that kind of stuff. But it was terrible. I tried to talk Aubrey Sitterson and Jacob Shabbat into doing something exactly like that. Would have been great. And I'm like, you guys are perfect for this thing. Aubrey knows it so well. Jacob can draw really well, but neither they're like nobody wants that. I'm like, you, you guys are wrong. <laughs> I think they are wrong. I actually, yeah. If Somebody Aubrey, wants if Aubrey's that. listening to this. That's that's the book you should be doing. I. I'll tell him the same thing. It's also, you know, you got to pick your passion. And, right. And wrestling really wasn't my passion. I was doing it because I was struggling to kind of get <laughs> a toehold in the comics industry. And so I was like, I'm just going to pick something popular and do that. All right. But the funny thing about that is all the characters in between the ropes were my superheroes that I created in high school just turned into wrestlers. 
And so after that failed, I just turned them back into superheroes and did capes. So all of the characters in capes are actually in between the ropes. So like the main character is Bolt, only he's a wrestler instead of a superhero. There's there's definitely a correlation to wrestling and superheroes. Sure. I mean. Secret identities, ridiculous fights. Awesome costumes. I wouldn't say awesome. When, in the case of wrestling, well, again, it's all was, just underwear, man. There was a time in the in the eighties sure, where sure. the costumes were much better. That's Iron true. Sheik had a costume. Yeah, like you know, then he'd take it off and he'd be underwear and boots, which is ridiculous. But the outfits they came out in, Coco Beware, all those guys. Papa Shango, a little later. I like that guy. <laughs> I don't even remember that guy. He was like a he was like a voodoo wrestler. Had like a like a big skull that he would carry and stuff. I remember Kamala. It was around that time. With the skull painted on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a big shield or something that he carried? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Me neither. Can we stop talking about wrestling? Of course we can. <laughs> so there's two other ideas that I've Tatanka? heard. Tatanka? Sorry. <laughs> two other ideas I've heard you mention that I'm curious what they are. What is the quad squad? The quad squad? Jeez, man. Where did that? Where was that I don't mentioned? even remember. I just wrote it down. That's ridiculous. I don't even know if I've talked about that publicly. Uh <laughs> You can no. veto it if you're like, I'm not talking about Quad Squad. I no. just thought the name was fun. I think I talked to Mark Englert about doing that. No, the Quad Squad was basically, uh, and I'm sure, I mean, it, like part of the concept kind of ended up in the infinite and things like that. But it was basically uh, four different versions of the same person from different time periods, like working together. So okay. it was a team of like four. Reed, it was a team of four Reed Richards. Right. It was like 17 year old. I know it all Reed Richards and. You know, like 35-year-old, I'm fairly established, Reed Richards, and then like 50-year-old, like I'm depressed and I hate life, Reed Richards, and then like, you know, 90-year-old, I know more than all of you and I, I'm going to die, right. Reed Richards. So it's okay. like a curmudgeon and like a, you know, shitty teenager. and It's that old riddle, riddle of the Sphinx riddle played out as a adventure story. A little bit, yeah. Sure. You know that riddle. I don't know the riddle. Of the, what are you talking about? The riddle of the Sphinx? Yeah, it was an episode of. It was in an episode of Super Friends. Okay. For what that's worth, but it's like what walks on four legs in the morning. Oh. Two yeah. legs at night, three legs. I've heard that. Yeah, and it's a man because he's crawling what? and then walking, what? and he's on a cane. Three legs at night. That's it's deep. Batman figured it out in the Super Friends, and it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is the thing that. You originally pitched to Ryan to work on, which was the president of the United States, or, or whatever. No, it was, uh, it was called President USA. Oh, is that what it was called? Okay. Yeah, and it was awesome. <laughs> can you can you tell Pre- me about President, president USA. USA? I actually talked to Jason Latour about doing that, too, and he did some pages, which are, I don't know where those are. They're lost in the sands of time, but they were good. Uh, love Jason. President USA. So here's the concept <laughs> by President USA. The president of the United States of America can get into places and meet with people that other people can't meet with. And so it was, super, it was a super secret thing where the president was actually an assassin. And so it was just like, I'm going to go meet with the world leader of whatever country that's like a horrible human rights violator guy. And while I'm there, I'm going to shoot him with my hidden gun or whatever and then escape. So it was like the president is an action hero. So it was like State of the Union addresses by day. And then he's like, you know. Killing people at night. That's not even close to what I imagined. It's pretty ridiculous. Because, again, I also thought it was presidents of, so I thought it was a team. No, no, you're getting it but, mixed up with the amazing band, the presidents of the United States of America. Or the ex-presidents, the old J.J. Uh, Settlemeyer cartoon. I remember that? Yeah. They had a comic of that? They did do a comic of that. I have a copy. Do you? I don't. Ah, uh, 
It got one up on you. I was working at a comic shop at the time, though, so I, I remember that comic. All right. Anybody who's tuning into this to hear you wants to hear you talk about Walking Dead. <laughs> so here's this is the Walking so, Dead segment. So let's talk about uh, uh, President USA. Yeah. So here's the Walking Dead segment. So the Walking Dead, particularly the TV show, has made you famous-ish. Sure. You've been on Conan O'Brien. That's, I mean, a, that's a degree of fame. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like comic book famous. But right. yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, it, it feels ridiculous for me to sit holding a microphone and say, yes, you're right. I am right. somewhat famous. I, Thank I you. I appreciate that. But yeah. Do you find, and this is not to dismiss that you are a funny person because you are. Yikes. Do you find that people laugh more readily because of your status? And I'm thinking of somebody like uh, David Sedaris, who is a funny writer, but when you hear him on an NPR live reading or something. The laughs are so easy. Like, he just comes out and is like, hey, everybody, and everybody starts laughing. Well, I mean, are you saying that I get a lot of laughs when I do these things and I'm you don't saying, feel like I deserve no, them? I'm is saying, that what you're do saying? you yourself find the laughs come too easy? Where, like, you say something, you get a laugh, you're like, that, in your head, you're like, that wasn't that funny. Well, I mean, when you're on Conan O'Brien, for instance. Uh, or even just a panel at a convention. But, like, Conan, I mean, Conan O'Brien, I think, in particular, yeah. like, you gotta, that guy has to laugh to make the audience think that it's funny. Like, of I course. think that he's such a funny guy in and of his, in, in, in himself that, I mean, I'm stumbling on my words now. Yeah, when you know guys like that that are that funny, they don't really laugh at shit. That's why, yeah. like, when you're watching the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary thing that just aired, yeah. when they cut to the audience, there'd be a lot of... You know, like people not laughing or Steve Carell at the Oscars. I just watched those. They cut to Steve Carell and he's never laughing. It's because he's funny as hell. And so <laughs> in his head, he's like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You know, but it doesn't like make him laugh. And so I think guys like that are like forcing laughs to like, you know. Yeah, I don't mean those. Going. I'm talking about civilians. Regular uh, Now people. I feel like I went on a on a whole tangent for no reason. No, but, you did uh, because that, that's something else I could talk about. And, sure. And we'll but get to uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe. Maybe a little bit. I think that I, I will say that I, I'm trying to continue to be keenly aware of the fact that there are now people in my life whom I spend a lot of time with, whom I would say to someone else, that, that, that guy's an awesome guy. But I have to always be aware of the fact that I'm never going to encounter them being themselves. So there's like, you know, like actors I hang out with or producers that I meet that are in like a businessy relationship. Like, you know, it's Hollywood. You know, you hear stories about people like throwing people out of cars and all kinds of crazy stuff or, you know, like they're like there. I know people that are very, very mean to their assistants and very, very nice to me, I guess right. is what I'm saying. Sure. And so I'm like, oh, that guy's a sweetheart. And then I hear stories and I'm like, that guy is really not a sweetheart, <laughs> you know? So I guess in that sense, like, I am aware that, I don't know, like, if I meet a comic book fan, like, they're probably going to be pretty excited to talk to me. So, I guess. Assuming they're a fan. Yeah. 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 I never meet the ones that are online that hate me. I always want to meet them. But, like, I, I guess I could see them, like, you know, chuckling at things that aren't funny just to, like, like so they can keep talking to me. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. Well, it's a, there was a documentary yeah. that Jerry Seinfeld was in called Comedian. I watched that. And he talked about how... I love that. I love that movie. But he talks about when he goes on stage, he's got, you know, that window where people are going to laugh at whatever he says, no matter what it is, <laughs> because he's Jerry Seinfeld. And he just yeah. has that opening to sort of fail for a little bit and not even realize he's failing because people are just going to be laughing. But after that first five minutes, he has to start being funny because that grace period is over. Yeah. 
So I guess that's sort of the question is, do you find that you have a grace period when you're encountering people? And I guess you sort of do. For, for me, it's, I, I don't know, it's like... Uh, it's not a bad thing, by the way. There's no judgment in this question. I, I have a weird sense of humor. It's like a yeah. very, uh, uh, I would say, a shitty sense of humor where... I would call it cutting. Yeah, cutting. Yeah. Cutting. And I, and I always have to like be mindful of that because in there are a lot of people that see me at Comic-Con and you know, you have a lot of like two minute conversations and the <laughs> things that pop into my head to say are like kind of funny. But if I say them, they've only been around me for 30 seconds. <laughs> so they're going to walk away and go, well, that guy's a giant asshole. Yeah. It's similar uh, with Larson. Larson has a very similar demeanor. No, Larson's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like again, I guess context is everything. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that think I'm uh, a monster, <laughs> but, no, but, but whatever. On the flip side, as somebody, I, I myself am a comedy fan. I think it's kind of awesome that. Well, like Max Landis, Max Landis, yeah. the famous uh, screenwriter guy, yes. super nice guy. I like him a lot. He would come to the booth cause he's like a comic book fan. And so I always knew him as the annoying hat guy. <laughs> and so he was like, if you've ever seen him in videos, like he's somebody that you would describe as obnoxious. Like he's like a he's got high energy. He, he certainly can be. You know, yeah. like you know, he's like a, he, he's cool, but you know, you, you get to you have to get to know him at first before you're like, oh, that guy's actually a cool dude. And so he would be very, you know, he'd come to the hey, I want to buy a comic, buy me, sell me a comic, you know. But I always remembered him, and he apparently thought I was a jerk because he would come with his hat, and I'd be like, oh, you again? What's up? Great. <laughs> Here's the comic. How you been? You know, and I was just messing with him. Right. But he was like, yeah, you, you were countering you were, that energy. You were mean to me. Yeah. You were yeah. creating a bit because he's high energy. You're coming at him low. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> I was performing for an invisible audience. I do that all the time. Although when I'm at conventions, I have people around me that are entertained by the sort of nonsense. I'm, it's either Chris or Jacob or somebody. So they're getting the show. And the person I'm talking to is. I do that lost. sometimes too yeah. when you're sitting next to a person at a convention so you know that they're hearing the same yeah, things yeah. over and over i'll tell a story completely differently to see if they notice or i'll uh like keep saying the same things over and over and then like kind of look at them because <laughs> it's kind of funny yeah it's great it keeps the monotony from being monotonous yeah on some fun. level and i can imagine the monotony for you must be not to dismiss fans because the fans are awesome sure but you probably hear the same thing over and over and over again yeah i mean you know it's 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 funny because you know, you go to a Comic-Con and stuff and you see all the people and like 95% of the people, the first thing out of their mouth is, I'm such a big fan. I really love your work. Yeah. And it's such a nice thing to hear. And yeah. it's certainly like reassuring and it's great. But at the end of the day, you're like, what? what? That's the weirdest experience. Like try as a normal human being going to a place where random strangers <laughs> bother you every two minutes just to say how much they love you. It's just really uncomfortable, you know, like at the end of the day, you're like, I don't deserve that. Like, why? Are they, and now I don't want to hear that. But like, it's a nice thing for them to say that to me. But it becomes diminishing know. returns, right? Like, it's nice every time. Yeah. But so like on hour eight, you have to like <laughs> remind yourself, don't roll your eyes. Yeah. Keep smiling. <laughs> yeah. This person like, doesn't it's know. It's the first time you've heard this. <laughs> and I don't really believe them. You know, I'm not really that good. Right. But, uh, but you know. Does anybody ever, because I, I, I admit to trying to do this. When you meet somebody who is famous to you. You try and say the thing to communicate, like that one sentence that will communicate to them that like, I really do 
appreciate like the specific. You try and find that specific thing. It's like I'm going to mention that one obscure thing yes. that they did so that they know. Uh, yeah, I did I've that with that Adam before. West. And, oh and, yeah, yeah, I had to. I'm like, I loved you on the Adventures of Pete and Pete. It actually, <laughs> it actually worked. Like he ended up signing something that it was a line where he was charging like every signature cost something. So I brought his book, and then I was going to buy one of the photos. And they said, oh, you know, it's this much for both signatures. I'm, like, I'm not going to pay for both. I'll hold on to the book. I'll get the picture. I said the Pete and Pete thing. He's like, hand me that book. He signed yeah. it, which was awesome. <laughs> but like, you know, you try and find that thing. Yeah, you're, the you're not here because your dad told me I <laughs> told you I was Batman. Great. Right. Uh, so, has anybody ever pulled one of those off where they talk about something for you? Like, I'm a fan of this, and it, you go, oh my god, nobody ever mentions that. Thank you for being such a actually devoted fan well it's funny like I, I rarely see the marvel books anymore so like when somebody comes through with like ant-man or marvel zombies i see marvel zombies a little bit i'm like oh whoa look at that like i almost forgot i did this stuff <laughs> and so that's kind of cool and i, I mean I, I i shouldn't talk about this publicly like they limit my signings now just because you know there's a lot of people and there's a limited amount of time and i i was trying to never limit my signings like because i think that's like a I mean, it's basically a shitty thing to do it's like i'm you know, profiting off of your support of my work and I come to this convention and I'm supposed to see you and if you're going to lug 80 comics all day long, then <laughs> the least I can do is fucking sign those things. I mean, come on. And so for the longest time, I never limited signings. And so, you know, I, I and I can sign pretty quickly. So I can blow through 50 books in like two minutes or something. And it actually gives me an ex excuse to have a real conversation as opposed to the, Hey, how you doing? Thanks. You right, have a good time. Right. Great. All right. You know, bye. Love your stuff. But it got to a point where when the show really blew up and like people could sell CGC comics for so much, like I had a few people that would come through my line with like three long boxes <laughs> and they'd go, you don't limit. And I'd, and I'd go, no, not really. And they'd go, all right, great. And they would just start God. piling the, and there'd be like a line. And I was like, this is not, that's not good. Like, I can't do that. Like, now I got people waiting. And so for a while, I'd say, hey, can you come back later? I'll pile these up. I would do them all. Wow. And I really don't care about people, like, selling signed comics and making money off of them. You know? Like, I, I know that bugs some people, but I, I don't know. Like, you bought the comic. If I can sign it, you can make a little money off of it. Like, it really, I think it's great. It's one guy, uh, One guy came up to me at a convention, and he was like, uh, I sold my walking dead number one and I bought this laptop and I just wanted you to know, like I work on this laptop. I needed this laptop. I'm writing on this laptop and it's great. And I really appreciate that. And I was like, that is the coolest shit ever. Like this dumb comic that I did that you bought for $2 <laughs> got you a laptop. That is great. Which begs this question. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, you. I'm, I'm oh. going to hold your interruption. I'll finish the story real okay. quick. So I, I limit my signings now, but you know, like every now and then somebody will come through with like black and white battle Pope. Or and and and, uh, and so I'll, I'll sign everything I can, but also there's like an unspoken rule where if you like put down 15 comics or 20 comics and it's limited to like five or 10 or whatever it is, I'll sign them anyway. Because I, I really like uh, it, it cracks me up because the security guys are told you have to limit this signing, you cannot let them sign anymore. And the security guys kind of work for me, right? Even though I'm not the one telling them to do that. And so then when they go to limit people, and I'm like, no, 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 I'll do it. Like, it, it, I think they get mad, <laughs> and it kind of makes me laugh because it's like, it's not a good situation. You're doing your job. You're supposed to be doing. I'm this guy sitting here going, no, 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 I'll sign these books for this guy. Like, it's just a really, like, taking awkward their one situation. Power away. Well, I guess, the one I guess way they can execute any kind of authority as security. 
just erasing it. But it's like, the guy's only got like three extra comics. I'm happy to sign those. Right. But I got this big bruiser. The guys at New York Comic Con are, are monsters. Like the security guys that they have are, are, are they're the coolest guys. They're very nice. If any of them are listening to this, I love you very much. And please don't break me over your knee. But probably the biggest human beings I think I've ever seen in person. It. So anyway, what was your tangent? So it begs the question. How many copies of Walking Dead number one do you personally have for that rainy day? That I personally have? Yeah, that you have. They're like, all right, when everything goes to, to hell, I can sell my copies of Walking Dead on eBay <laughs> and sustain for a little while. Well, don't hold on to them too long because that value is eventually going to go down. And it could happen any day. <laughs> any day. That's what I tell myself. Hey, it's all going to end soon. You it could happen any time. Keep yourself in uh, check. But no, I mean, I think, uh, well, so I have to say I started out with 400 copies because I started out in self-publishing. Right. So I had access to my print runs. I mean, I have access to my print runs at Image. But like when I started out, when I first went from Funkatron to Image, I was like, I'm going to get as much comps as possible so that I can sell them at conventions and, you know, whatever. So I would get like 400 copies of Tech Jacket, 400 copies of Capes and Cloudfall and all these books. And I have, I have a warehouse of just comps that is just ridiculous <laughs> so if you ever need a copy of tech jacket number three i still have about 395 of them all right that is true so i started out with 400 and then the first chicago con after it came out the book came out in october so fast forward to the next year in july because they're yeah july's because i did the, that con every year i think it might have been august actually not important anyway i just put them on the table and sold them at cover price because it was like you know it was this big book and nobody had them and I was like, oh, I'll get some more readers, and and I think I blew through like 150 or 200 in the two or three days that I was there, and uh, I don't really regret that. It's kind of fun. Yeah, sure. And they, I think they were worth like 20 bucks at that point because the book was already kind of taken off. Oh, nice. And so, uh, so people were like, wait, what? Is the cover price? And I would only sell them one, so I blew through a lot that way. But I'm down to like 20 now. All right. So, and I, I give them out to people sometimes, and I have been uh, every now and then I'll buy an odd one. Because, like, there was, this is a true story. This guy apparently bought The Walking Dead number one. And when the show happened, because the comic came out in 2003, show happens in 2010. Yeah. So, what's that, seven years? Seven years. So, the show happens, and the guy goes, I, I, I bought that comic. I know I have that first issue somewhere. And he looks, and he finds it. And it's been in the floorboard of his car for seven years. It's been in the floorboard of his car for seven years. So he gets it CGC'd, and it gets a .5 rating, and they put it on eBay, and there's like this fuss, like, oh, the worst copy of Walking Dead number one is on eBay. And I was like, I, I have to have that. I, I must own that. And I think it went for like $700 or something. Wow. Like, I really wanted it when it was at 50 bucks, And then it became like an obsession. I was like, I, whoever was bidding against me, it was like, I don't care what they bid. I must have this. Like, I absolutely have to have this comic. This is the craziest thing ever. And you still have it? It's sitting behind you right now. Is it really? I'll let you take pictures yeah. of it because I know you do that cool thing where they... The show notes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like those. Thanks. But yeah, so I, I, I buy like weird stuff like that every now and then. All right. So I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm gaining... Walking Dead number ones. I have my reader copy right here on the spinner rack. Oh, just, there it is. Just sitting there. Oh, I've always wanted to do this gag. I'll never do it. But, like, this is the, like, terrible first impressions kind of shit that pops into my head. <laughs> sure. Because I have extra copies. I have, like, 20 of them. I've wanted to bring a copy of Walking Dead number one to a convention. And then when someone brings me 
walking in number one to sign, I go, oh, cool, thanks. And I take it and I rip it in half in front of them. <laughs> and then if they don't freak out, then I pull, you know, then I pull, not if they don't freak out, I would do it anyway. But yeah. what I'm trying to say is if they don't kill me or beat me to death in that moment, I'll have a moment to like pull out this brand spanking new walking dead. And I would try Holy and crap. make sure it was like a kinked up copy. So the one I would be giving them would be in better condition. Yeah. But Holy I've never crap. done it. I've, I, I just think it would be the funniest thing in the world. Like and you, that's because that's my terrible sense of humor. But I think I've the never, only way to do that is somebody's video, like it's recorded and it yeah, becomes. Then you're like showboating. I don't want to do that. But I don't know. I, I feel I like, like it would be a funny urban myth. Oh, Let's just amazing. get that urban myth started. Yeah. All but, right. Whoever uh, wants to start that urban myth, say it happened to you. I've never done it because I'm always worried I would do it and then yeah. like, I would be like, my dad gave me that copy and then he passed away. And yeah. I'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> and the replacement copy just isn't the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah that's, that's a great bit, though. So it doesn't work, but I think it would be hilarious. Or, and then I, I told uh, Sean Kirkham, who's the head of business development at Skybound or whatever that is, whatever his title is, and he was like, we should stage it. We'll have a guy we know come through the line with a Walkie Dead number one. So you're not actually ripping up someone's copy, but everyone around him is like, you just ripped up that guy's right, Walkie Dead. A bit Dead. of theater for the fans. And then it got to that. And it's like, why do that? <laughs> what's, the, what's the point of that? It keeps me young, Greg. That's good. That's, <laughs> these are the things we need to do. Put on a show for ourselves. Yeah. I think the result of this podcast is Robert Kirkman is one weird and also a dick. <laughs> so uh, I don't think anybody's going to think either of those things. They might think that of me. We'll see. What we'll these, see. What are these walking dead questions he's asking? Because here's the next one. Oh, it's not over yet, but yeah. go ahead. There's two more. So the next one is your notoriety has gotten you recognition within the comedy world. Because you've, you've been on Nerdist. Sure. You were on Conan, we mentioned. Yep. And then... My personal favorite is you were on Speakeasy with Paul Tompkins. That was a lot of fun. It looked like a lot of fun. I watched that and I was thinking, this isn't going to be as fun as that. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do what Paul does. Like, he's so great. As a comedy nerd, I watch this and it's sort of like, oh, man, he gets to, like, pal around with all these people, be part of that world. You can probably go to the UCB whenever you want. I never do, though. That's the worst part. So are you a comedy, not comedy nerd, but are you into that sort of thing? Where... Well, I'm definitely into that sort yeah. of thing. I mean, I've been to SNL a few times, and that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I've been to, I went to, is it called Ass Cats? Yeah. The thing Ask in New Cat. York? I went to that. That was great. Now, you just went, or were you a, a monologist? Well, I don't know what that is, so I apparently have I've only been there once. <laughs> All right, so the person uh, that comes out first and t- tells the story, and then the improviser. No, 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 no. Okay. I, I didn't. It was between Walking Dead seasons one and two when we were at New York Comic Con. Okay. And it was funny. Uh, Chris Gethard was the guy that came out, and yeah. I was just in the audience. And they did the thing where they're like, anybody have any interesting stories? Right. Like, whatever. And Sarah Wayne Callies, who was playing Laurie on the show, yelled, this guy created Walking Dead. <laughs> And I was like, oh, Jesus. And so I had to stand up. And then Chris uh, Gethard and I did like a little bit, like impromptu, where you're like, I don't know, I was being a dick. And like he, he started by going, I actually wrote a letter to your comic. And then I was like, yeah, I remember you. And then we kind of went off to the races and did like a little back and forth, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's but, awesome. Uh, so that was fun. But like it wasn't like an official thing. Right. Well, I don't know. The Paul F. Tompkins thing is very impressive to me, who thinks he's really funny. And I thought that, uh, that interview was pretty good. Thank you very much. <laughs> he asked, you, he's a great laugher. Like he laughs. He is. He is. And it, 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 it's almost like it's like it, it moves him. He's like he kind of looks yeah, down yeah. and does like a. Ho-ho. And there's nothing. I mean, does anything feel better than making a professional funny person laugh? I, it, actually, no. Like it. It's it, the it, best. it is. Yeah. There was somebody. I was talking to somebody recently. It was with my wife. 
And he walked away, and I was like, "Oh, it was, I, I, I met Louis C.K." Okay. And I and I was just like, "Oh boy, I'm talking to Louis C.K." We had left an event, and we were waiting at the at the valet as you do, and it was awkward because like all these there was like Hugh Jackman was there. It was like all these celebrities like waiting at the valet, which is like <laughs> ridiculous. I'm just like, this is crazy. And so I look over at Louis C.K. and I go, "Look, man, I don't want to bother you, but I'm gonna kick myself later." If I don't at least say hi to you, I'm just such a huge fan. And he just looks at me and goes, thank you. I'm uh, I'm Louie and reaches his hand out to, to shake my hand. And I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, man, I, I know who you are. Like, this is weird. And he kind of shook my hand and was like, Meh, nodded and like looked away. And I was like, man, that was, that was not what I, I was trying to make that guy laugh. Damn, oh. it, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I think he knows what people are doing that. So he's like, I'm going to shut you down. But I also know that he doesn't – he'd rather do that than take a photo. Like if you had said, can I take a photo, he wouldn't do well, it. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to take a photo. That would be a breach. I'm just saying people <laughs> love doing that, and he'd rather have that exchange than take the photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, here's the last question. The photo thing cracks me up. I get that a lot. You get that? I'm really – you've been at like restaurants before, and they're like, I'm really sorry to bother you. Can I take a photo? <laughs> and I'm like, I do it because I'm like, yeah, you can't say no because then you sound like a jerk. Right. But I'm just like – I'm at a restaurant with my family, and a stranger walked up to me and said, can I take a photo with you? Like, That's just the weirdest thing in the world. It is a little odd. A little odd. Especially because your, your, your fame, and I'm putting, I'm, yeah, I know, it's gross, is from writing. So you're, you, what you look like and who you are should be irrelevant. I guess. Should be. Should be. Yeah. I wish I were thinner. Let's just say that. <laughs> so as somebody who's gotten your property option, then it is now very huge. Sure. The natural thing happens, and it happens with you. It happens with Brian Vaughn. It happens with anybody whose work stretches out and starts writing in another medium. You get the, I love comics. I always love comics. I'll always be writing comics. Comics is everything. And not to dismiss that that's not accurate. <laughs> but how much of that is you saying, like, okay, so your comics audience is... 50,000 people, let's say. The larger audience is 20 million people. Right, right. Do you really think, like, if you said, like, screw this, TV is less stressful in some ways. Like, you're writing four scripts instead of... You sound like someone who hasn't worked in television. <laughs> Again, I know it is stressful, especially right. when you're producing and that sort of thing. But in terms of the writing process, like, you're writing, you're on a team, you're writing a story, they break the story, you go off and write your script... They produced that episode. I have some basic knowledge of it. Sure. Versus writing four monthly comics and running Skybound and blah, blah, blah. Like on some level, I would see somebody leaving, like Brian Vaughn, who left comics for a while to do TV work. Like, I didn't fault him. Yeah. This guy's going to go earn a living, still gets to write, still gets to tell stories. But you get that drumbeat of Brian Vaughn or whoever else saying, I still love comics. I still love comics. What is that? Like, I sort of know where it comes from. Well, there's two things at work here. And this might be a little long, and it's probably going to end up being really short. So anyway, <laughs> Brian came on and I had lunch with, I'm talking out of school now, so they'll, they'll be fine. I had lunch with Ed Brubaker like two or three years ago. Okay. And both of us were just like, don't ever work in TV. It's such a <laughs> racket. And I, I love, t it's a, I'll do that. I'll do that aside in a second, because I don't want to sound like I'm disparaging television. But we were just beaten down, just beaten down by all the different stuff that happens in TV. And Ed 
was like, you guys are crazy. What are you talking about? Like, I, I got I got a pilot. I'm, like, I'm doing some stuff. It's so fun. I, I, it's all I want to do. Like, I really, it's not all I want to do. It's right. like, I really, I really like TV, blah, blah, blah. You guys are crazy. So then, like, fast forward, like, maybe six months or a year ago, I was talking to Ed, and he was like, he's done, like, a lot more stuff. And he was like, I, I had no idea. You guys were so right. Like, what? That's, it's like, comics is the best. Like, it's 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 great. And the thing is, is, like, TV is fun and movies are fun and everything, but, like, when you, comics are so pure, you know, and it's like, I know that I can write a page and I know exactly what Corey Walker or Charlie Adlard or Ryan Otley or Jason Howard or Paul Azaceda, like all the guys, I know exactly what they're going to do. And it's really exciting, like being distilled down to that pipeline, you know, like I give a page to those guys, they turn it into a product, that product comes out. On The Walking Dead, I had a scene I wrote the teaser to, if you go back and watch it, I'll tell this story publicly, whatever. There's a the teaser for the finale of season two, which I wrote that teaser in its entirety. I wrote half of the script, so there's like different parts of the script that I wrote, but that teaser was all mine. And it was supposed to be showing the formation of a herd, because that was when we were introducing that concept of the fact that zombies are attracted to each other based on their behavior. And if a zombie sees another zombie walking, it will think that zombie is walking for a purpose. And so it will start walking in the direction that the other one is walking in. And then eventually the one that started the herd will think it's walking because the other ones are walking. And that's when they start moving in mass and whatever. And so it was a sequence of events over a period of days that showed the formation of a herd. So as it was written, it was like zombies are milling about, and a truck drives by and backfires. And that makes a sound. And three zombies are like, mm, what the hell is that? And they start following it. And then a couple of days later, these three zombies walk by another group of zombies and they see them walking by and they're like, well, what's going on? Okay. And then like, there's a nighttime scene where that group of like 12 zombies is walking through the woods and it comes into a clearing where there's another group of like 20 zombies and they merge and start walking in the same direction. And it was just like a series of those things. And then there was a sequence, or then the, later on in the sequence, just showing how these things move across, like after it had built to like thousands of zombies, I had them come to a split rail fence. And when they get to the split rail fence, it's like those like horrible concert stories that you hear. The crowd starts pushing the zombies against the fence. And before the fence breaks, they basically crush the zombies in the foreground and the fence breaks and then the crushed zombies fall to the ground and the herd tramples them as they come through the broken fence. And I was so proud of it. I was like, ah, it's just beat for beat. It's just showing how these herds form and it's just awesome. And you're going to see these mindless creatures crushing their own just to, cause they're this unrelenting force. And then the last shot was you hear, I can't, yeah, it was Rick shooting uh, Shane. That gunshot draws right. the herd to the farm. And on the day of filming, they were like, yeah, we can't show any zombies fall down. So, like, the zombies that were supposed to be crushed against the fence, we couldn't film them falling down because a stuntman got sick or there was some kind of scheduling snafu. And a human being dressed as a zombie cannot legally fall down on camera. It has to be a stuntman. And because we didn't have a stuntman that day, we, we couldn't do that bit. And then... Because of the shooting day and night, we couldn't have so many beats in that thing to show 
this is a week ago and this is a month ago because we couldn't go day to night to day to night yeah, to yeah. day to night because we didn't, weren't filming enough nights in the episode. And there's just so many like weird restrictions that pop up. It's still fun. It's still a great experience. I still like it. Don't get me wrong. But the experience of working on a television show versus the experience of working in comics is so different. Sure. You know, and it's fun to sit in a writer's room and hang out with your friends and it's fun to write an episode of television and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm very proud of The Walking Dead show and I feel very comfortable talking about how great it is because I'm just one small piece of the puzzle. I don't think I can freely talk about like, I don't feel comfortable saying, yeah, The Walking Dead comic is great. Then I feel like I'm just saying, I, I am a good writer. <laughs> Look at me, you know. <laughs> So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different thing. Like I have more of a sense of ownership on, on the comics sure. and, you know, it, I mean, it's it, certainly it's a, a more a, fulfilling experience. It's certainly a bit of grass is always greener, right? So people making right. comics, the idea of the payday is the option in the movie or the cartoon or whatever. Right, right, right. So, but then when I, I always just imagine that people getting that payday feel like they have to pay service and say, no, 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 I still love comics. Yeah. It's that, it's that like, no, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Well, the funny thing about it, and, and, and Brian has talked about this publicly, so I don't feel too bad, but people think, oh, that Robert Kirkman making all that sweet TV money. <laughs> Charlie Hadlard and like everybody involved in The Walking Dead, like we make more off of the comics right. than we do I've off heard the you show. say that, and I've heard Brian say that yeah. about uh, I mean, Saga. Brian, yeah, Brian yeah. was like, I make more off of Saga than I do off of working on Under the Dome. Right. You know, like TV money is great, but Image, the way that works is... You know, you're only paying 20% to the publisher. Like, the right. publisher just takes, like, a, a little bit of a fee to be able to, you know, pay for the stock and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the thing about Image is the upside of basically owning your own publishing is is insane. So even monetarily, television isn't that enticing, I guess. Walking Dead section is over. I everybody, mean, it ain't bad. Everybody can now turn their podcast off because we're going to talk <laughs> about everything else. No, no, no. You're supposed to say, and coming up at the end of the podcast, More we've Walking got, a, Dead. got a shocker for you. <laughs> yeah. Something you never could have guessed about The Walking Dead revealed exclusively on the Stuff Said podcast. I feel like everything from this point on will be more interesting. I feel like. Okay. <laughs> I'm done talking about The Walking Dead. Me too. We've already talked about some of this stuff about Invincible that I have written down here. Okay. But one of the things you talk about with Invincible is that it's sort of the distillation of all the things you love about superhero comics that you were reading. The sprawling epic, the whole nine yards. Yeah. I also heard you, there was a, uh, one of your panels, a Q&A panel was recorded. <laughs> and at the beginning, you talk about how much you love Batman. Those are dangerous. The, how much you love Batman the Brave and the Bold, that cartoon. Right. Which I also love. One of the best Batman cartoons so ever. So good. Which is yeah. another distillation of superheroes, but different. Because it's episodic, but it's just so big and boisterous and awesome yeah. Batman smiles but it's also like I mean I, I really wish they would do a Batman movie series that is in the same like do we really have to do Dark Knight over and over again no, like there's not. so much Batman out there to enjoy and the fact that Batman Brave and the Bold is like aliens are invading it's call so Batman good. it's so Batman good. will get in his spaceship <laughs> and go out to the moon and fight the aliens with his laser guns like what that's it's the so coolest good. Batman ever so that's Batman's saying, Batmobile turns into a giant robot. His cape turns into a jetpack. Oh, God. Oh. It's the coolest. I was on the phone with Dave Finch when he took over that Dark Knight book, and I was like, if you don't have that fucking Batmobile <laughs> turn into a giant robot, I'm going to be so fucking pissed off. It's a perfect opportunity. And I don't think he ever did it. But he was like, I'm going to do that. That sounds awesome. No. So that's going to segue us into talking about Super Dinosaur. Oh, okay. Because... 
I read all of it. I like Super Dinosaur. Thought Great. it was awesome, but it didn't <laughs> it didn't capture the, ima- the the audience that I think you wanted it to. Well, I mean, I think that. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I'm not going to uh, immediately get defensive. All right. Oh no, it's a comic for kids. Right, right. So, and Batman: The Brave and the Bold was a cartoon for kids, and I think they yes. were both equally sort of boisterous and exciting. Super Dinosaur was playing to a comic, so it was serialized, and there were cliffhangers, and there was a story to keep reading, right. characters to connect to, backstories sort of peppered in, just not to the degree of Invincible, but still it's there. That, yeah. that Kirkman writing aesthetic is there. Twists and turns, and uh, Derek's father's memories go, like, all that stuff is there and stuff to keep you... Yeah, I mean, I was doing Super Dinosaur with Jason Howard as a comic appropriate for kids, yeah. but I was really trying not to simplify it in any way like i wanted it to be as involved and you know i wanted it to be like what i remember like those great marvel comics from the 80s and 90s being yeah like, which is how i try to approach yeah. you you want to you want to capture the feeling of the thing not the letter of the law but like right. the, the emotional connection to it which is again i think batman the Brave and the bull did for an adult you watching like yes superheroes are awesome or the movie the incredibles when the little Definitely. kid runs over the water oh yeah, yeah and he's like this is awesome you're like yes that is awesome i want to run on water like that stuff. So, but Incredibles is a great example because it's got those like really heartbreaking moments. Yeah. So, as I think about Super Dinosaur and I think about the stuff that I do or the stuff that Jeruso or other people doing kid stuff is, and this is going to get into when we talk about the mission statement, which I want to talk as much about as we can. By the way, can I just publicly say that like I basically did Super Dinosaur for my kids, and my son's like, "What's this G-Man book? <laughs> I like that." <laughs> I was like, "What? Really?" God damn it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you can't anyway. win them all. But the art is so much better in Super Dinosaur. What does it matter with you? <laughs> Sorry, that was just for Chris. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so something we talk about all the time and we experience it at conventions is we are doing stuff for kids in the right. spirit of, of kids' comics, and Super Dinosaur was the same. But it's really hard to compete with the brand names. So a parent with their kid, no matter how interested that kid is in Super Dinosaur or Pix or what have you, that parent wants that kid to read Spider-Man. Right. Whether or not Spider-Man is appropriate for that kid is something we're going to talk about in a little bit. <laughs> but I'll do respect to the people working on Spider-Man at this current time of this recording. Did you find that in your experience with Super Dinosaur? Like, what, what did you think was missing in terms of the audience understanding what you were doing, I guess is the question. Well, I mean, I th- first, I think Super Dinosaur is no different than any other creator-owned comic. You know, everyone is always going to have an easy... Retailers are going to be able to sell a brand to somebody who's familiar with that brand way easier. A reader is going to be more interested in following something that they've been following, you know. But what do you do? Do you give up? Like, no. The whole point is then we're not going to have any new brands if we just be lazy and right. we just go, oh, great, it's easier to do this than I'm just going to do this. You know, <laughs> like, that's that's... You know, don't do that. So... You know, in that respect, Super Dinosaur is no different than, say, Invincible or Walking Dead. Like, Walking Dead is a great example of, you know, I could have done a Night of the Living Dead comic. and almost did. That's a story for another day. <laughs> but, you know, instead, you know, I started my own brand. So, you know, it's, it's harder to sell a new idea. But I think also working against Super Dinosaur was the fact that I don't think that the direct market as it is currently positioned is not, you know, an ideal place to market to kids because you know there's not a lot of kids going into not only are there not a lot of kids going into comic book shops which is a sad truth the parents that are bringing their kids into comic book shops are much more likely to have like a nostalgia component in what they buy for their kids so you know a parent 
is not really familiar with Super Dinosaur, and so they're not going to say, oh, I remember reading that as a kid. You're going to love this. Yeah. Which, by the way, does not work. My son, I'm always like, <laughs> oh, you're going to love this. Sit down. You'll like it. And he's like, oh, I don't get this at all. But uh, uh, loves Teen Titans Go, uh, which is great. But anyway, so, you know, it, it was definitely an uphill battle. But I think Super Dinosaur, to me, is almost my most important project that I've done. Like, I, I, I mean, it's going to sound stupid now, but I'll go on record. Like, I think that it will eventually be more successful than The Walking Dead. I think that... I would almost say it's like the crown jewel of my career, you know, just because I think that, uh, you know, it has a lot of potential and I I would just say, give it time, damn it. But yeah, the comic could have sold better. I mean, I know it's something you're passionate about because I talked to Jason Yeah, and, you know, I talked to him like, so what, what issue you're working on? He's like, well, it's, it's stopping, but Robert really wants to do more with it. So there's, it's not done. And Robert has these ideas and I can only imagine some of those ideas because, at this point, it seems like I mean we've now mentioned several cartoons, yeah. Teen Titans Go, Batman: Brave and the Bold, like, the, and then there's stuff like Ben Ten and the stuff that the Man of Action guys did. Yeah. No, if I had to list my top five favorite shows on TV right now, it would be like, like just on on TV running right now, it'd be like Better Call Saul, Togetherness, Girls, uh, Steven Universe. Like Steven Universe is like one of the best things in the world. But yeah, I mean I love cartoons. Is that where you're going? Well, it basically it's not. It basically, I'm I'm wondering. And now that you have these ins with the bigger media, sure. we'll call it, is that sort of the thinking of like, well, if Super Dinosaur, if things like Ben 10 or Adventure Time or not so much Batman the Red and the Bold because DC's doing their own thing, but if those yeah. are the things that drive people to comics, like if there's that licensed comic that gets people to read, in the same way that when I was a kid there was a G.I. Joe comic and that brought you to comics, a lot of people of my generation came in through that door or Super Friends comics, or whatever the case may be, is that some part of the thinking of like, well, if we can make this thing work outside of comics, it can bring people back to comics. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, it, you know, that, that's something that I constantly think of because it, I mean, it sounds like pandering, I guess, but like, I do love the comic industry. I do love the art form of comics. I mean, I, I try to do little things like that as often as possible. I mean, you know, there was like the, the free comic book day walking dead issue had stuff in it that you could only get in comic shops. Like that wasn't available in bookstores. It wasn't collected in trades. And so I was hoping that there are people that, you know, buy the trades at Barnes and Noble, but suddenly they're like, Oh, there's this other walking dead thing I want. I could only get that in comic shops. And so, you know, I would love to be able to build super dinosaur into a thing like that. Like if you think about, you know, Harry Potter, like I, I feel like Harry Potter, if it had been a comic book, and had only been a comic book until it became like a big movie and all this other stuff, like it would dry, like people loved Harry Potter so much. Like it would have driven people into the comic shops in droves. And I would love for there to be something like that. I mean, to a certain extent, I think walking dead certainly fits that bill to a certain extent. I mean, but I know there are a lot of people, readers, but yeah, kid and, and readers building that audience for super dinosaur and other stuff like it. It seems like the path is, and it's the harder path clearly yeah. than making a comic, which you can do. Having a cartoon of this thing, again, in the same way that if there was a Ben 10 comic, yeah, kids would read it in the same way that kids read an Adventure Time comic. There was a great Ben 10 comic written by uh, Peter David and drawn by Dan Hip, but it wasn't the origin of Ben 10. I know what you're saying, but I just feel like I need to plug that comic because it was pretty cool. All right. But anyway. Look, DC puts out comics based on these Cartoon Network shows, but they don't sustain them. They don't care. Well, it's also the origin. I think the origin is the important thing. I think that audiences actually are keen enough at this point to know 
oh, the origin of that was this comic book series. Well, I want to read that. I think that, you know, something like Ben 10 as a comic book, they know that the origin of that was the cartoon. Right. So the Ben 10 comic book isn't giving them any kind of special insight or inside information or any kind of like cool tidbits that inform their television viewing. So it's not this thing that you would seek out. Like it actually has to be the origin. That's a fair point. Okay. Starting point. Oh, yeah, yeah. So then at this point, if there were a super dinosaur cartoon, you could say it's based on this comic. It would drive people back. Right. Right. And then it would be like, keep, oh, you're yeah. going to know what's coming up or you're going to know like what the what the original intent of, or how Super Dinosaur originally behaved or what they changed right. when they made the cartoon. So like, where is the Super Dinosaur cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> These things take time. OK, fair enough. <laughs> All right. But there, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I, I obviously there's nothing I can say publicly of yet course. or I would have said it, but I will say <laughs> that, you know. There's there's work done toward that end. It uh, seems like uh, that's the line, the right? It seems like that's based on my calculations. That seems to make the most sense. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, look, it's I, I think that Super Dinosaur is a, a, a cool concept that you know would appeal to kids. My nephew I, loved it, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I I certainly don't feel like like oh the comic isn't enough. It's not really real until there's a TV show or all these right. other things. Like I hate that mindset. But I do think that, you know, it's it's much easier to reach kids with something else. And I will say, my 11-year-old nephew preferred Super Dinosaur to G-Man. Oh. Because I gave him both. Nice. And he couldn't stop talking about Super Dinosaur. Eat it, Giruso. <laughs> so there you go. Nice. He liked them both, but he preferred Super Dinosaur. Uh, is is he available for adoption? Uh, I'll ask him. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see what he wants to do. <laughs> I just want a child who likes my work. That's all. So the thing I've wanted to talk to you about since yes. about 2008 okay. is your mission statement. <laughs> yeah, great. And I hope you'll indulge me. Well, let's do it. Because I'm fascinated by the entire thing, everything about it and everything surrounding it. I, I, I stand by what I said 100%, and I wish more people noticed how right I was. <laughs> okay. I don't dispute your mission statement really at all. Sure. I listened to it, and I thought, yeah, yeah. And then I started hearing the responses mm-hmm. and the interviews you were doing with people afterwards. And I kept saying, no, <laughs> no. Why is from what everybody... I was saying or from no, what people were the saying? People. No, people, people hear what they want to hear. Like, why are people missing the bigger, the bigger point here of what Robert's saying? So I want to sort of parse it and really get into it. Sure. If that's cool. Yeah. You know, it's five, uh, what is it? Eight years later, seven who, years later. Who, who knows? But it's interesting conversation nonetheless because so much has changed, but so much hasn't changed. Can I just say a fun anecdote? I was in front of a green wall because my daughter's room had just – my son's room had just been painted. Yeah, we didn't paint my daughter's room green. And it was empty at the time because we'd moved all the furniture out. And so I was like, I'll duck in here and record this stupid thing that I – I don't regret it all. It's – okay. So you start by talking about the life cycle of a creator in comics. And you talk about how you start out doing independent work, then you do corporate work, and that's where you go, that's what happens. Yeah. That's the life cycle. And you weren't wrong. Yeah. And For that's actually part. a new that's actually a new like that's a fairly recent development. Mike Bignolo's talked about it. Like back in his day, it was you get hired doing corporate work and you yes. work on that until you can do your own thing. Right. When I broke into comics, that was it was sort of that transition was happening. So I broke yeah. in at Marvel, but I did an issue of what if. A couple issues of what if, and then ideally you'd get to do something else. You'd sort of get tested, 
and then you get put on a monthly thing that doesn't sell well, and then you sort of move up the ranks. Right. Blah blah blah. So, and that's as an artist, a writer, the same thing. You write eight page stories here or there when those books existed, and then you'd get more work, and then you'd be like a Mike Mignola or a John Byrne or a Walt Simonson and go do something else. Right. Frank Miller. The Star audience would Jammers, go with you. Your next man. Your Hellboys. Yeah. yeah. The audience would go with you. Right. Because the audience was getting old, and this is we're going to talk about life cycle of the creator and the reader. Because the reader, my life cycle was I started when I was eight or nine, and I bought any comic that had one of the super friends in it, and that's what I was into. And then you get a little older, and I found Power Pack, and that sort of brought me into the Marvel universe. And you sort of leave some of the more childish toys behind. Right. And you start reading that, and then you go, "What's this mature reader stuff? What's Vertigo?" And you start reading that. Yeah. And you start leaving stuff behind. And then you start reading Evan Dorkin or what, you know, you go way off the rails and you stop reading superheroes for a while. And then you come back to them if you want that nostalgic hit sure. or whatever. So that seems to have changed. And that's what you talk about in the, in the mission statement is like on both of those things, the life cycles have changed completely. And your line was the fanboy becomes the fan man, becomes the old man, becomes the dead man, <laughs> which is a really efficient way of saying we're all aging at the same time, and the books are aging with us. Right. And we're not getting that scene at the end of Toy Story 3 where the kid passes his toys on to the little girl, which is an amazing sequence, and it's yeah. something we should all sort of learn from. That's a good point. Uh, it's that idea of, you know, to make the comics appealing to guys like us, they keep doing this, quote-unquote, breaking the toys. And right. If you keep breaking the toys, nobody can play with them anymore. Yeah. To play and they're not, And they're not the same toys anymore. They're not the same toys yeah. anymore. So yeah, so like as much as I criticize corporate comics for being this regurgitation of the same stories over and over again, it's kind of what they need to be. They need to be that. Yeah, it's the Disney model of every seven years the audience cycles over. Right. Or at least it used to be the Disney model. It might still be. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that part first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, like, I, I will acknowledge that there were like nine parts to that. I have it. I have it sort of into like three sections. Definitely, were uh, uh, it was a mess. But go ahead. So. To the, to the corporate thing, you know, you talk about nobody aspires to write sequels. Nobody aspires to write, you know, uh, what was the example? Pulp Fiction 2, you right. said. Yeah. And, yeah, there's not a lot of directors that that's like, an, that's like a thing for them. Right. And Roger like, Langridge oh, explains it. It's like, you know, it's just ghostwriting Stan Lee. That was his way of explaining it's it. true, yeah. Yeah, which is a really effective... Well, I mean, I've heard it said, like, the, was it the 80s was the first generation of comic book creators where they were actually writing fan fiction? Right. And from that point on, it's all fan fiction, yeah. right? Yeah. And then I have this notion of the illusion of creation, which is if you get on Batman and you introduce a new element to Batman's history, you trick yourself into having something to do with having created Batman. Right. Yeah, you feel like you've actually done something when, when it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, put, I put a pimple on Batman's butt. Yeah. That's, I'm not going to write home to my mom about that one. So for you as a reader and creator, did you always have the I'm going to do my own thing one day bug or did you have that? break point where you always wanted to write a corporate character and wanted to have that illusion of creation and then something popped maybe in 92 maybe somewhere else along no the i mean I, I started reading comics in 90 90 or 91 okay so i think that i'm unique in that i started reading comics and i was like man this uh, x-men spider-man this shit's pretty cool like, so you started read... as an early teenager yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah, i was like 14 or so right 13 14 and so by the time I was really invested in X-Men and Spider-Man and all that stuff, because the Walmart I bought comics at didn't have DC comics. Like that's, I need to say that. Like that's the only reason I wasn't really into DC. But all those guys left and they formed Image Comics. Yeah. And so it was like, well, I, I, guess I, I guess I could read 
Mark Pacella's X-Force or, you know, like Art Tabear and Fabian Nicieza doing X-Men or was it Scott Lobdell already? I don't remember. Anyway, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop name dropping because that sounds like I'm being mean. Art Tabear is actually like a fantastic artist in his own yeah. right. I've been buying uh, some original art done by him. And I, I, uh, original art is a, is a really fun thing for me because you like those older comics, like from like the 80s and 90s, the older comics. The lettering's on the boards. Lettering's on the boards, yeah. but also you never really can appreciate the inks the way they were printed back then. So like you get these pages and you're like, wait, what? This is what they were doing? This is insane. But anyway, I, I go off on a tangent. That's fine. The cool comics were the image comics. And I grew up keenly aware of the fact that, you know, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, all these guys, they weren't getting the fruits of their labor when they were at Marvel and DC, and they immediately left, and the audience came with them, and it made them rich, and they got to do their own things, and and, it wasn't really the rich part that interested me that much, it was the, you know, I control and own the things that I create, you know, and so that was just the path to me, like, as a young guy, I was like, oh, I, I just want to do whatever I can to get popular so that I can actually make a living selling comics. You know, I guess it sounds a little cutthroat. I mean, I definitely wanted to write good stories and enjoy what I was doing. But my to boil my main goal down to what I wanted from day one was I just want to have fun doing what I'm doing and also not be homeless. You know? Sure. So, so when, you were, when you were prepping this statement, what had you, I mean, how did you lead to this, the cycle of creator concept to sort of lead things off? Because you start off like, I'm going to explain why I left Marvel. And you, and you start with the cycle of the creator. Like, were there things you were seeing or was it just over the years you'd noticed or having conversations with people? Well, I think it's the, that, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's something everyone is aware of in comics, but it's something no one talks about. Yeah. Like, everyone will be like, man, where did Marv Wolfman go? Right. You know, but they don't talk well marv wolfman stopped being popular and so the big company stopped hiring him yeah and he allowed the moment where he could hire himself to do his own thing pass yep. and so in marv wolfman i've met him he's a really nice guy i really hate naming names like that that's kind of a shitty thing to do but marv wolfman was like the top guy but there are a bunch and i think of he like writes that. he writes screenplays now yeah. and is like a successful screenwriter but like he's not a successful comic book creator because you know, he let that moment pass. There are and, a lot of guys like that. I mean, yeah. I, I wrote down here. You, you, no, you, you got you know list. You can list. Them. Well, you've got a Chris Claremont. Yeah. Or on the flip side, somebody that knew when to to do it was Kurt Busiek. Right. Who who realized like, okay, this is a finite line. Like, no matter how well Astro City sells, the fact that there is a thing that when you think of Kurt Busiek, you think of Astro City. That guy could potentially work for the rest of his life. Now, Astro City may not always be successful to the point where he can make a living just off of that, and it might be, and he can do other things, but that becomes a springboard. That becomes a base. It becomes like a a shelter that you'll always have that you can get other work out of, you know? What's amazing about that is he started Astro City before he was writing Avengers, Yeah, and that's like, he was on top of it pretty early on. Like, it was Marvel's, and then... I spoke to him, and he's like, nobody was offering him anything worth a damn. So he just started doing, you know, it's like, fine. Astro City and Untold Tales of Spider-Man were the two books yeah, yeah, that yeah. really put him on the map for people. So that's it's impressive. Or somebody like Mark Wade, who I find fascinating because he's really talented as, at writing the continuity-based stuff. Like, it's so good. Sure. And he plays in the, in the creator-owned stuff, but he sort of went different direction with Thrillbent, and he's sort of building a whole different mechanism. But he's building something. 
Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, he's recognizing know, he's what he can do towards with, doing something yeah. interesting as opposed to just doing what everyone else is doing. Right, right. So basically, we're in agreement on the life cycle stuff. I think everyone. I mean, the, the fact that anyone argued with me on that is that's ridiculous. what I mean. It's so like, people, <laughs> it's like, oh, really? You're you're gonna be like, you know? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm trying not to like name modern names. If I wasn't being I recorded right them. now, I'd be no, no, no. It's I'm willing horrible to believe thing them. to do. But no, it's like the guys that are writing the top books now are not going to be writing the top books in five years. Like right. that's just you know, and maybe one of them or two of them will be, but not going to be doing it in eight years. You right. know, like there is a there is a finite time. Where you get to do those books. There are a few exceptions when they become actual corporate VPs of the companies they're working for. And even that's not forever. But even then, it's diminishing returns yeah. on the stuff that they continue to get to do. I mean... Yeah, that stuff ends. VPs right. get fired. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> basically. All right, so then you lead into your very hyperbolic, <laughs> I'm going to save the comics industry... And you admit that it's it's. Well, I was just doing that to make sure people were paying attention and to be kind of tongue in cheek about it all, you know. Right, but it's, but it's yeah. still it's a bold claim. Sure. And you you begin to lay out the concept. You got to give people something to talk about. Of course, that's <laughs> what. Uh, who sang that song? Let's give them something to talk about. Uh, I don't know. Oh, come it was on. either like the Judds or Reba McIntyre or somebody like that, wasn't it? Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. I knew it was a uh, a little bird. Just told me it was uh, Bonnie Raitt. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, let's give them something to talk about. Classic 90s song. Sure. I think it was the 90s. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So. <laughs> it's a tangent no one gives a shit about. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt does. Oh, yeah. Bonnie She's Raitt's listening, listening to this podcast. Of course going, she is. Yes. I got to mention. <laughs> Sweet. Somebody will tell her. An astute listener. We'll see. We'll see. So. Bonnie, it's really great to meet you. Can you take a picture with me? Hey, I was listening to a podcast the other day. <laughs> I'm just trying to eat dinner. So the gist of your Save the Comics thing was established creators should leave Marvel and DC to do creator-owned work, and that void would be filled by new creators writing newer stories. And, and I'm really distilling this. Yeah. And Marvel and DC should realign their efforts to make their stories for younger readers, to keep that reader cycle that we talked about before a fluid thing. Right. Give readers a place to come in, and when they start making jokes about Aquaman or Batman's underwear on the outside, they go read something else. Yeah, it's like, please don't do that. <laughs> right. Like, don't, don't make jokes about the characters you're telling stories it's of. the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so I heard that. Yeah, you might think this character's dumb, and he is, but I'm going to change him in a way that makes him not dumb. Oh. Fuck this character I'm writing. so mad. Yeah. I agreed with everything you said. That entire thing was so spot on, and the thing that really bothered me was <laughs> about reactions. You keep setting it up like you're getting ready to just like jab a knife in my heart. No, no. I believe in everything. I agree with you 100%, but you're an idiot. What bothered me about the reactions was... Sure. Everybody got caught up in the people should leave Marvel and DC without understanding the life cycle component you were talking about. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's an interesting thing at work here, and I find it fascinating, and I'm probably going to get attacked for even talking about it. But when I was coming up in comics, people walked around conventions with fuck Marvel t-shirts, and you know they were like, like they they recognized that Marvel and DC were big corporations that you know didn't really have creators' best interests in, in mind. And and that's a fact that has always been true. I even had a fantastic conversation with Tom Brevoort one time where he was like, 
it's really hard for me to become friends with a creator because I know there will come a day eventually where it's not going to be my job to hire that creator. Yeah. You know, because nobody likes his work or because his career has run its course or whatever. And it's really awkward because as much as I like a person personally, this is a business and I'm in the business to sell comics. And so I can't be someone's buddy and hire them on a book if it's not going to sell. And that's just a fact. It's just a fact, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, there's different underhanded shady (laughs) shit that they do that we all know about, but nobody talks about. Yeah. But anyway, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the internet age or whatever, like people seem to love Marvel and DC. Like if you say something bad about Marvel and DC online now, people are like, how dare you insult my friend? And it's like your friend that's charging you $2 extra for a comic because one of their corporate employees said in an interview, this is online, you can find this online. One of their employees was like, we wanted to see how much people would pay for comics yeah, because we know that people are addicted to our product and we wanted to see how much the market could bear, quote unquote, how much the market could bear. You don't want to leave money on the table. I've seen that written. Yeah. It's like, what? Like what? Like, I mean, and, and, and it's just like, you can't, you know, and, and it's weird. Like you, yeah. So I say, you know, creators should uh, think about themselves before they think about the company first. And then there's a lot of people online that are like the company, how dare you, how dare you say disparaging things about the company? Just looking at the online reaction to the Kirby stuff is insane. Oh, it's ridiculous. Or, or... Those kids didn't do anything. <laughs> it's the like people at Marvel that are running that company did less. Right? Yeah. Like, the Kirby kids might have been in the floor of the room they might have inspired and maybe something. said something. Yeah. I know that my, I was playing, I was playing with dinosaurs with my kid, and I was like, my dinosaur's name's Jim. What's your dinosaur? And my son was like four or three at the time. I was like, what's your dinosaur's name? And he goes, my dinosaur's name is Dinosaurus. And I was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? You just threw out Dinosaurus as like the best name for a dinosaur character I've ever heard. And Dinosaurus was a villain in Invincible. And if my son ever hears this as an adult and he comes at me for royalties, it's going to be ugly. But I'm telling you right now, <laughs> that kid totally came up with the name Dinosaurus. So the Kirby kids could have done something like that. Absolutely. You know, they he could have had aluminum foil on his y'all. head and yeah. been like, I'm Silver Surfer. And Jack was like, that's great. Yeah. The name might have been from, uh, from Stan. I don't know. It's kind of silly, so it probably was. But anyway, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, how dare any, anything that will prevent them from being able to find out if Captain America is going to win today upsets <laughs> them. If the Kirby's win, I won't know if Captain America is going to beat the Red Skull next month. Now, do you think it is a modern thing? Because I remember back in '92, there was definitely a reaction to Todd, especially Todd, sure, and the guys forming image of who do they think they are. I mean, I think yeah. myself, even at How that age. How dare you stop working at O'Charlie's and found your own restaurant? You think you can do better food than O'Charlie's? I mean, I'll admit that when I was, I guess, in 92, I would have been 16. By the way, just for the record, no one can do better food than O'Charlie's. But that's neither here nor there. I, I was among, like, when I watched the, or I didn't watch it, I read in Comics Fire's Guide the debate between McFarlane and Peter David. Yeah. I might have been P- Team David at that point because <laughs> I loved the Hulk and it was a really good comic. <laughs> sure. And then I didn't like Todd Spider-Man. I read it, and I'm like, I don't like this. The art's cool. Because the writing wasn't yeah. good. Todd will tell you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, I was time, hanging out with Todd and his wife, Wanda, at one point, and she said something about the Spider-Man comics being terrible. And I almost fell out of my chair. 
<laughs> it was the best. But in I shouldn't have said that on a podcast. <laughs> but in hindsight, you look at the story, and you certainly that image documentary where Todd is the most compelling thing. Yeah. Where you just watch him, and you're like, I will follow you. Because you, speak, Todd. Todd is Todd is a genius. He speaks with such conviction and authority, yeah. and he and he plays it out in his life like he's never done any other work. He's just built his machine. So I don't know. Is it a new? Th- I think it's just fans choose side. Like they choose their fandom, and it goes to that Eric Stevenson line. I don't know if you wrote it or said it. It's like nobody says I only see Paramount movies. Yeah. Right. Like nobody, nobody chooses such allegiances that way. Outside of comics, yeah. People oh my just god! Pick a team. Fox movies are terrible. <laughs> it's crazy. What? what? And when a creator, of course, Fox things. movies aren't editorially driven. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, here's what you're going to write today, guys. What? So when people react that way to your statement, to your very fair assessment. As a independent creator, well, I mean it. It was a fair assessment, but it was done in an obnoxious way. So I'll give I'll give people a little bit of leeway for being a little annoyed. But, a little bit, but sure. But when you have somebody, and this is I'm, I'm misremembering things because I listened to to the episode of Word Balloon you did shortly thereafter, a long time ago. But you were talking to John Suntress, and it almost seemed like he was having you justify this position. If memory right. serves, I could be, and I apologize right. to John Suntress. I feel like he was working for the enemy, but go ahead. So, <laughs> all right, that's a way to say it. Like, when you're talking to people who should be more informed, who should know the lay of the land. Sure. Like, how do you stop from just either disappearing and just never engaging with the internet again, or just screaming, like, what's wrong? Like, just... I find it incredibly entertaining. Okay. You know, it cracks me up. I, I mean, especially, like, some of the guys that came out attacking me. I was just like, Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Like, there were a couple of people that were, like, really important, classic, well-known creators that could not get arrested at Marvel or DC. That were like, you're an idiot. How dare you? And it's just like, what? That's not, that's not real. That didn't happen. But, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is, like, a lot of people were mad at me because they were like, you're saying, you're saying a bunch of obvious shit and trying to, like, act like you're smart. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, not really. I was saying a bunch of obvious stuff that people should notice. Like, I wasn't trying to say I was the first person that ever thought about leaving a corporate job. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think it was funny more than anything. But it is, it, to a certain extent, it is sad that people don't really get the real spirit of what I was trying to do. It's, And then to – we'll do one more part of the, the statement, and then sure. I want to talk more about the reactions to it because we're going to talk about the debate. The Bendis debate. <laughs> the famous which, debate. Which I just watched the other day to, to refresh. Yeah. But then you talk about, the last part of it is, I want to call a meeting of the heads of the companies, which is hilarious. It's funny. It's so funny. <laughs> Again, I was trying to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The but, way you say it, that part yes. is hilarious. Because that's we, like, because I, like, we should get on a cruise. We should go on a cruise, cruise together. Part, but just the whole, like, I want to call the heads of the companies, like a, like a mafia sure, thing. Sure, sure. Which I think is actually, like, Illegal. It's like, and that's what I was going to ask like you collusion, about. I think that's. I didn't find that out. Till that's later. a cartel. Yeah. Like let's yeah. let's organize something. Competition. Like competition is good, but let's talk about how we're going to compete. Like I think yeah. that's completely illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I think the airlines uh, do that do? and get away with it. 
Did anyone? I was still in my twenties at this yeah, point, yeah. so I could I could do some dumb things. Did anyone respond to that? No, no, of okay. course not. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> not even like Mike Richardson was like, "Good point. Let's talk." No. But you gave props to Dark Horse in your reader cycle. Right. Like you said, Image and Dark Horse should be doing stuff for readers that are over. Well, I mean, another criticism I got was you just became a partner at Image and you're just trying to get people to do Image books. And it's like, I mean, if you do a comic book that's creator-owned at any company (laughs) other than Image, you're kind of an idiot. But I wasn't saying you have to do anything at Image. Like, it's the best deal in town. You can't beat it. But it wasn't a recruitment drive for Image. Like, you can do creator-owned books other right. places. I'm but sure there's build, a reason that I don't know about that you might do page, something like that. It's a page rate is the reason. Sure. Advances, things like that. I know Dark Maybe. Horse gives an advance or a page rate, and Vertigo does. Maybe. So that's the appeal is you're actually Not getting... feel like you're calling me on my snottiness, <laughs> but go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> for people listening, I'm explaining sure. what I understand the differences to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to Image where it's all your own risk. A little bit of Image's risk because they're printing the books. But a little bit. Yeah. You would know that better than I would. You're a, you're a GD partner. <laughs> Which, here's a question that I forgot to ask. So, the, the, the statement you did, it was in 08. Yes. Walking Dead TV show launched in 2010. Right. Where was the, where was the Walking Dead development at that point? Uh, dead. Really? Yeah. Like, completely dead. I wasn't sure if there was, like, the, the secret behind the thing was, like, this had just, you had just met with Darabont, so you were no. really amped after that San Diego, and, like, this is going to be huge. No. Okay. No, it wasn't until much later. Okay. I, I mean, know. it was, like, I think it was maybe, like, six months or eight months after that when talk started again. Okay. But, you know, because there was, I've talked about it before, we, we almost had a show at NBC in like 2005 or 2006. That would have been great. And then it completely died. Yeah, it was <laughs> good. It was a good chasm. Well, the executive at NBC, like, it was famous. They, like, uh, they called and they were like, we like this. It's really good. Is there any way you can do this without zombies? <laughs> we are like, not really. But, yeah, so so it, it had all died down at that point. All right. And then. So I had I had no clue. Sure. I just didn't know because, you know, the life cycle of a TV development is long. Right, right, right. I'm not smart enough to make sure that I have some kind of thing in my back pocket to carry me on if it's a giant disaster. Now, the last He's part of your, my mouth off. The last part of your statement was more creator-owned comics means more creator comics sell. The making more of them means you can sell more of them. Right. And that seems to have meted out as true eight years later where Image's market share has continued to grow. Yeah. And guys like Brubaker have left yeah, because the, the more the more you're buying a creator-owned comic as a consumer, the more comfortable you get with buying creator-owned comics. Right, and at this point, it seems to be for a good. I mean, that at least that part of the statement seems accurate, and people should at if least that part. Well, because <laughs> again, I agree with the theoretic. Sure, of sure. The making comics for kids, but nobody's put that into effect. Right, and nobody's going to because the machinery is kind of broken. The direct market, all that stuff is, which is why a lot of people making kids comics are going towards outside the direct market schools, libraries, because that's where the kids are reading. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, a book like Smile is invisible in the direct market and it's huge. So that's a whole, again, we could probably keep going. Yeah, I could talk about this all day. So the reactions. We've talked a little bit about it without naming names, but we are going to talk about Bendis because you did have the debate with Bendis. Right. And I want to sort of, I don't know how much you remember about that exact experience, but watching it the other day. We played in my head every day. <laughs> watching it the other day, a few things struck me. So 
one of the things that struck me was for all the joking that happens between you guys, and there's there's banter back and forth, you were genuinely serious. And you were genuinely trying to make some points. Yes. And I wondered if in the room did you feel like anybody was on your side? Eric Stevenson was in the audience. Okay. So I knew I had at least one. <laughs> But in the room, no, I don't think so. Because at one point, Bendis is coming back. He's like, you're not showing trades numbers. You're not, he had the well, charts. It, it, I mean, he would like say dumb things, and then the audience would be like, yeah. yeah the audience like, oh, like, my God. Like what? Yelling. No, that's not accurate at all. But go ahead. <laughs> like the audience was participating in a sort yeah. of like, trades, trades. So I was curious about that. And I felt but it was like, like. It was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention trades because I didn't have time. <laughs> so bad on me. But I also didn't mention trades because I feel like it would be unfair because it reinforces my <laughs> argument so much. And I don't know why you don't know that, but I guess it's a good way to, like, dig on me. Well, that's what, that was the other thing. It seemed like, and I know it was in the spirit of jokiness back and sure. forth, but it's almost there was a little bit of dismissiveness and a little bit of, like, being willfully obtuse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this isn't to dismiss Bendis, who's done fine work and he's worked very hard and he's made himself... A, a very big you would be hard pressed to find someone who's been more successful at comics. I mean, he's yeah. you know kind of played the game in the best possible way. Although to quote Roger Langridge again, there's Stanley, there's Charles Schultz, and then there's everybody else. It's true. Nobody will ever be for all of your notoriety. <laughs> I told people I was talking to you, and they're like, "Who's that?" <laughs> well, that'll keep you humble. No, you know but, what I mean. Uh, it's 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 comics, like you yeah. said, comics famous, right? I want to give you props, though, because there was a, t- a moment of, of comedic timing that was so perfect. And you might know what I'm <laughs> tell, talking tell about. Tell me more. No, I really have no idea. You're going back and forth, back and forth. And Bendis is like, where'd you get those numbers? You're like, oh, the internet. And oh, it just yeah, becomes yeah. this explosive. Like, oh, I was, crowd, set, I was setting them up. Yeah. The crowd is just like, rrr, rrr, they just rumble. Like, the lines are ready for you. He's like, you can't trust those numbers. And then you're like, hit the next slide. And it is a perfect... <laughs> Perfect slide of, and the, at the top it says internet numbers versus actual versus numbers. public numbers, yeah. Or public numbers versus, like, actual numbers. And the yeah. chart is great. It's the exact same shape no, of a and line. No, and it's, it's funny because comic book creators historically love to go online and be like, my book is actually doing better than you think it is because those numbers are nonsense. They don't include the UK numbers. They're, they don't include reorders. They're, they're very inaccurate. And it's like, yeah, your book is doing a step better. But every book next to it is also doing a step better. But, so the numbers are 100% accurate. You could just, in your head, add 8%. And, and the scale, actually, at the top of the chart, it could be as high as 20%. At the bottom of the chart, it could be as low as 3%. But that online chart is a very accurate representation about, of what comics are doing. But even beyond that, you weren't even talking numbers. You were talking patterns. Right, right. You were talking over time attrition or like you know so the numbers are less the specific numbers were less important than right right the lifespan of the thing the trajectory of the series yes yeah forecasting and that sort of thing yeah which i find very interesting i do wish somebody would go through that podcast and i have no ill feelings towards brian and we've actually gotten together a couple of times recently and he's a very nice guy he's corporate shill it's total corporate shill. He's up Marvel's ass. But uh, hey, I'm just saying that to be funny. I know that in the in the cold audio of, of podcast, yeah. I sound like a giant jerk. Hopefully my laughing. Right up Marvel's ass. If it had my laughing ass, helps. 
if Marvel had an ass, it would have a hole in it shaped like Brian Bendis. But anyway, um, <laughs> but anyway, I do wish like because there was like uh, there were a lot of like things that he said during that debate that were completely did not come true. Like he said something like Dark Avengers is going to launch. And you're going to see Powers numbers skyrocket because Dark Avengers is going to bring more readers to Powers. Did not happen. And there's like four or five things like that where I was like sitting back at the time going, none of that's going to happen. Why does he keep saying these things that people can fact check him on? And nobody's ever done that. Now, I will say, and this is, this is a, a two, two parts to this. Sure. One of them is in defense and one of them is like he was getting it wrong. So the big debate was. Are creator-grown comics sustainable? Is it something any, anybody can, that people can do? And your argument was big names should be doing it. And he was saying it's really hard and you shouldn't give people false hope, which were two well, yeah, separate we were, arguments. It was, it, I was really frustrated at the time because, yeah, I was like, wait, you're, you're, you're doing powers. You can't argue that creator-grown comics aren't sustainable. Right. And, and, and in his head, he was like, you're right, and I'm not arguing that. I'm doing that trick where you win a debate by arguing. It's like, I agreed with everything he said. Like, yeah. it's really hard starting out. Like, I, I did just... Battle Pope. You know, like, everybody in comics has yeah. been through that period. Like, it's really, like, everybody big in comics has been through those struggling, lean years, you know? And it's like, that's, that's not what we're talking about. You know, right. I mean, really, I just self really, that was I was almost getting angry. I was hiding it, I think, really well, but I was almost furious that he kept doing that. Well, because he was making the argument about somebody starting out. Yeah. And you weren't making that. Your statement had nothing to do with that. Your statement was give the people starting out room to play in the in the Marvel and DC universe. Yeah. The rest of us should leave the toys behind and make our own toys. And it became this very circular thing. But he is not wrong that starting out as a self-publisher right. is brutal. Right. And it's also a big risk for a creator to leave Marvel Huge. and DC and, and do a thing because you don't know if the audience is going to follow you. you and time it just you know, right. If you do a terrible book, probably not. Right. But, you know, if you actually are going to do something cool, like there's a very good chance that they're going to follow you and that it's going to be successful. But like he kept arguing. Uh, there was one great point where he's like, well, he, I think he mentioned Mariah Carey. And you're like, maybe it was a bad album. And I thought that was nice. <laughs> just like, a, which is true. Like you can you can fumble. Sure. You know, to bring up Claremont, he tried to do Sovereign but, Seven, and it was a fumble. But did, did you just like, yeah, you go to Creator Comics, you could fumble. Yeah, you could struggle. It may not work out. Yeah, if you're doing corporate comics, they can fire you any minute. Yeah, any minute of any day, someone can call you on your phone and go, "Hi, how are you? Your life is ruined. Goodbye." Click, and it's like, I don't understand why people think that's job stability. It's or, like, oh, you know, the ah, creator-owned comics is so it's so risky and it's so like I'd lose my mind. I can't I can't do that. That's not st- that's not stable. How much do you think of it is then just whether or not somebody has that entrepreneurial spirit, that desire to do that kind of work? Well, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I, I another thing I got criticized for was. Well, if somebody wants to write Spider-Man, who are you to say you shouldn't write Spider-Man? And, you know, I guess there is that odd creator that has no desire to create anything new. You right. know, who's like, I don't know, I just like doing this stuff. You know, I guess. Like, whatever. And, you know, I feel bad for those people. But I, I guess if that's what they want to do, that's cool. I mean, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. My thing was, the reason I was so empowered or charged to do this is that I'd been to so many conventions and you know what it's like you sit around with creators and they're all like the guys on the top books that fans would think are like super happy are like I don't know I just want to do my own thing there's a lot of I really hate doing this 
I do. I really, I really don't like this book, and I and I just keep doing it because because I feel like it's all I can do, and I gotta be I gotta be secure. There's a lot of fear and and risk. Yeah. I mean, because it's I draw SpongeBob comics. That's how I earn my paycheck. Right. Because self publishing doesn't do it yet. And on the one level, pays well, but I get a little annoyed sometimes with the association with SpongeBob because I didn't create it. I had nothing to do with it. And the creator in me wants to be known for something yeah. else. I have that entrepreneurial spirit, so I self-published a book. But I know a lot of people that don't have that. Or, and maybe I'm a little impatient, a little ego-driven, where I'm like, I'll do it myself. I'm not going to pitch this thing around because that's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but there are other people that have more patience for that and submit it to first, second, or Oni, or what have you, and sort of yeah. go through that process. Which, again, that's we're now talking about exceptions to the rule and that sort of thing. And, and sure. your, your mission statement was speaking generalizations, which is another thing about the debate. It became a parsing of exceptions to the rule where it's like, well, you're very successful with The Walking Dead. So yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you were like, the Luna Brothers have done just fine. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, you talk big talk with Walking Dead. And it's like, it's because I know that I could live for the rest of my life on the money I make off of Invincible. Which? Like, Invincible, <laughs> which is not... 15,000 copies. Yeah, but That's it's like insane. when you factor in the trade sales and everything, Ryan, Ryan and I make a very good living just off of that book. But that, that book only sells 15 is crazy. Uh, you know, it's a superhero book, and when, I'll you're, say competing with, when you're competing with Marvel and DC on, in the superhero game, it's very hard to... Taking you out of the equation... Sure. Ryan draws so well. I agree. He's so good... It's like death defying what he's I, doing. Don't diminish my accomplishments on the title. I, let's suppose you I am very talented. This, uh, let's say you had nothing but, uh, to do with this comic at all. <laughs> it should still sell better because of that artwork. But I mean, you know, it's it, like it's like this. Does a single issue? Do the single issue sell fifteen thousand? Yes, but I could argue that Invincible is more successful than the modern, current Captain America and Thor yeah. series. And here's how. Here's the interesting facts, okay? Yeah. 15000 per month on the single issues. Captain America's doing like 32 Something 35, like that, which is also crazy. Ridiculous. Big Avengers movie, it's big amazing. Captain America movie. It's so depressing. I don't need that comic book, thank you very much. <laughs> so, so anyway, 35 let's say 40 whatever. The Invincible trades... We print 50,000 of our print run. We sell out in like a year or so. We do another 50,000, and we keep doing that all day long. And we're in the millions over the course of the 20 volumes or whatever, and the hardcovers and all that kind of stuff. So a single issue of Invincible actually gets seen by like 300,000 people right. over the course of whatever. And that keeps building every month that goes by. But those modern Captain America, Thor series, whatever, 35,000 copies, they print like 8,000 trades or yeah. 5,000 trades. Marvel actually sells very little trades. If you actually pay attention to the numbers, Image is the number one seller of trade paperbacks you know, in bookstores because yeah. Marvel just doesn't – I mean, they don't print very much. And, and also so they don't, price everything way too high. Yeah, and it's like it's very it's hard insane. to like stay on a series because it's always out of print and, you know. Yeah. So, so – the current issue of Captain America is going to be seen by like 40,000 people. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we only sell 15,000 copies. 
Boo-hoo, I guess. <laughs> We're I'm, suckers for doing independent comics. Also, then you factor in the fact that Ryan and I are making the vast majority of the money generated by that book, and then the people at Marvel are going, well, you know, for the sake of using the character, we're just going to keep all that money and give you guys a fee or, or some kind of page rate. It's a book that in 2003 was priced at 295 and in 2015 is priced at 299 I'm very proud of the fact my very first comic that I self-published, Battle Pope, was 295 I kind of wish we hadn't done that four-cent jump, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's like essentially two ninety five, two ninety nine. That's like the same price. Yeah. But yeah, so for the, do you know why that is? Can, I, love, can I can I say this on a podcast? Because I say whatever like, you want. I feel like I've hit a level of obnoxious that frees me to where I can actually say this. I love this. Publishers claiming that paper costs have gone up over the last ten, fifteen years. It's nonsense. It's a complete lie because because print is dying. Printers are slashing their margins in order to get people's business and compete with each other. And so the printing costs on our books, on my books, on image books have actually gone down slightly, not a shit ton, not a lot, but slightly. It's actually slightly cheaper <laughs> to print books than it has been in the past. And so the, the, the price hikes that are brought about because of uh, paper costs is a lie. Well, again, I just self-published a graphic novel at a printer that I know prints books for other publishers, and I know what my book costs to print, and I know what my print run was, and it is low. Yeah. So when I see these books that are twenty bucks or twenty five bucks, these trade paperbacks, I just I now have trouble buying them <laughs> because I just go like, "There's no way." Yeah. Like I get that people are getting paid, and I, I appreciate that, and I know that. I mean, I'm, also, you know, the retailers taking a big chunk yeah. of that, and Diamond's taking a big chunk Look, of that. So. I'm making no money off my book. I think I yeah. get maybe fifty cents a copy when they sell through Diamond which is not maybe a quarter. I don't even know. I have to do the math again. But It's a volume business. <laughs> it's a volume business. It's a long-term yeah. volume business over years. I've, I've, I, I, I remember the days when I'd get a $300 check on Battle Pope and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, are you kidding me? $300? This is awesome. See, I'm not young enough to have that reaction. So my reaction is like, God, really? That's it? Uh I think my mortgage was $400 at the time. So I was like, I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm almost there. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, the price of comics. I, wanna, I, I, I appreciate that. It's weird to me. And look, I'm probably using a different kind of paper, and there's certainly factors, but sure. We're now way off the, the – but it's very fascinating to me that for the past, I'm going to say five years at least. Yeah. Certainly Marvel books and some DC books are more expensive than independent books. And that – I still can't wrap my head around it because I remember when Hellboy was more expensive than that. Yeah, remember when all the Marvel books were $2 <laughs> yeah. and all yeah. the like image and stuff were like 3 Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that that's flipped and nobody has a problem with it and that – No, I mean – There's a million it, copies of Star Wars number one that are $5 each. Yeah. Is baffling. Yeah. And I don't think it's good for comics. I don't think five – I don't think $4 Spider-Man comics is good for comics. No. It's not healthy. No, I mean, it was, uh, uh, I'm not going to say which publisher, but it was explained to me that, uh, you know, listen, the, the price hikes, you know, you make substantially more money because you may lose 15 to 20% of your readership, but if you're making 30 to 40% more money, well, that's, you know, that's, that's worth it then. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but losing 15 to 20% of your readership is not a plan for long-term success. Like, yeah. 
like who doesn't know that? Like, I know I don't understand like, Oh, we can lose 15 to 20% of the people that are supporting us for decades for fucking decades. <laughs> And, and and make a little bit more money today? Like, what are you talking complete, about? And I know that advertising revenues are gone, but it's a complete abandoning of it where right. nobody would advertise in anything with the circulation of any of these books. No. So rather than try and get the circulations up and maybe get some ad revenue. By the way, in, the really scary thing is, like, it's not across the board, and it's really hard to track, and so I'm sure it's not definite. But if you look at the sales charts online, those grossly inaccurate sales yeah. charts – from the jump to two ninety nine to three ninety nine to four ninety nine, you can see that like you used to have like books like Civil War that would sell like five, six hundred thousand copies. And now the only time a book sells that much is when Loot Crate is buying five hundred thousand <laughs> copies to give away in their in their loot crate. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's just crazy. It's like you can actually see like, oh, a book that would launch at like hundred and twenty or so five, six years ago is now launching at eighty. And it's like, yeah, that's that's like a noticeable that's a noticeable thing. It's scary. Yeah. Well, I think, we, I think we've solved it. <laughs> right? No, no. Absolutely not. Be snarky on a podcast, and it'll change the world. But we're saying real stuff. I, I think so. I think that's... I can't wait to see how people attack me for it. They I'm might saying, attack me. I'm saying obvious, researchable facts. I think more likely <laughs> they're going to attack me because I am nobody. <laughs> so I have no like to stand on. Who's this idiot talking yeah, trash? I don't know, man. All he did was draw three issues of What If in a Spider-Man anti-drug comic in the nineties. I think this is a career-ending podcast for me. <laughs> well, your career started, so <laughs> at least you have those twenty copies of Walking oh, Dead be, that you can don't sell. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, I love it. I, I again, this it'll, is a conversation. It'll happen, Greg. Just keep, just keep plugging away. Yes, just keep, great sage advice. Good God. This again is a conversation. I've, I've wanted to have, so I'm glad to have had it. And I have other notes, but we've been talking now for almost two hours. Has it been almost two hours? Yeah. Let's give it a little bit more. Come on. It'll more? be fun. Yeah, sure. All right. Seems I've, like you got some more questions. I'm having fun. I have a ton of questions. But then some of these, I'm like, Kirkman's way too savvy to have this sort of public conversation. <laughs> to talk, like, for example, talking about certain people you've collaborated with and such. Sure. Well, a little bit. So I have two things about... Your, your process of creating comics. Okay. So one of them is you've talked about your writing as being very uh, fly by the seat of your pants. You know, you can make stuff up on the fly and that's the, the advantage of making comics and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I've seen people online because because I look online. I'm watching you all <laughs> if you're listening to this that are like, ah, he's just shitting it out. And it's like, no, I have the freedom to do that because I have meticulous plans and I know what I'm doing. And and I love being able to go off on these tangents, these very like spur of the moment, like the that 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 charge, like being able to go this character that's been in this book for eight years <laughs> dies right now. I have no idea what the consequences of that are. I have no idea where the story goes from from that point on in that respect. Like, I know where the story goes, but I don't know how, like, someone reacts. To, like, I don't know how the characters in the book are going to react to this. Like, that's exciting, you know? Yeah. And it's like that chart. Like, in TV, another example of, like, comics being better than TV, it's an outline stage. It's working things out in a writer's room, discussing pros and cons to all this other stuff. It's getting notes from the network, getting notes from producers. Like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't kill that character. Well, actually, I think this is going to happen if you do that. And it's like such a labored, you know, and it's great. It it, it makes stories have to 
you know, be a little bit more held together and, 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 and stand against a lot of scrutiny before they exist. But there's so a parallel good, in comics but, where you write your script, you see the art, you make tweaks. Right. Dialogue, you tweak it. The lettering yeah, comes, but, you tweak it. But that stuff's drawn. It's not like I can be like – I mean I, you can go, you hey, can. redraw that page, but then you're a jerk. But I'm saying the artist brings something to the table that makes you go, right, huh. right, right. All right, let's, let's monkey with this. So I guess my question was – because when I spoke to Larson, he explained that when he was doing Dragon, he had a goal. Yeah. He had this thing he was going towards, which was getting back to the original comics he did when he was a little kid yes. and tell that story. But then when he got to that point, he was like, okay, I guess I'll just start making stuff up. <laughs> so I didn't know if you had a point in either Walking Dead or Invincible, which have run long stretches, that you reached and then had to sort of rethink what's the next point. Well, so in both books, there was definitely a point that I was building to. But the thing that I did that Larson didn't do is I kept coming up with more stuff (laughs) as I was getting to that point. So, like, when I started, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Like, when I started Walking Dead, I had a rough idea on how to get to the all-out war storyline that that started in issue 115. I had no clue... That I was going to do, for instance, everything that happened between issue 80 and 110. You know, like there was a lot of stuff that like was plugged in as I moved along. But I knew they were going to get to a prison. I knew they were going to live there for a long time. I knew that it was going to eventually get to a point where they formed communities and those communities did battle. And and, and, and I had a rough idea of what's happening now where they're all forming civilizations and stuff. But, you know, you definitely hit a point where you're like, this is the stuff that was the last point I had thought of when I started the book. Right. But the journey to that point, I kept laying down more track and putting more road ahead of me. So I still had like another like eight years where the stuff spitballed. Yeah. Spitballing. It's not like really nailed down. Blue sky thinking, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So that was, that was one of the questions. Then I want to talk about your eye for artists and who you, by the way, I emailed several of your artists and asked them to send me, like, let me see a plot. What does a Kirkman plot look like? Nobody sent me anything. Are you serious? So I don't know if these are special, what these plots look like. Bunch of jerks. But I, they probably were just like, nah. I asked. Uh, I'll s- why didn't you ask me? I'll send you stuff. Because I, I wanted to come, like, I like to do my research without letting you know what I'm doing. Oh, So I that see. I can do my questions oh. and say, Paul as a senator sent me a plot for Outcast, and I wanted to ask you about, like, nothing. I asked him and Jason. Okay. I actually asked all the artists I had emails. I asked Ryan, Jason. I emailed Aubrey. I'm like, you guys have anything that I can ask Robert? I'll ask it anonymously. He That's won't funny. know it's you. Nothing. Uh, 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 You've got quite a team behind you. Well, I mean, I certainly wasn't. It's not like I told them never share anything. Uh, apparently. Can, uh, I, can I tell you a fun anecdote? My script sure. writing is based on Joe Casey's script because when I started Battle Pope, I had no idea how to write a comic. And so what I would do for Tony and the other artists that did Battle Pope is I would draw thumbnails of the pages and they would have word balloons, and they would have the dialogue written. And I, there, some of those are printed in the back of the trades. Yeah. But that's it. I would go, here's what I want the page to look like. And then when I started doing Super Patriot at Image with Corey, which was like the first book I did after Battle Pope, I did all my thumbnails. And then I put the thumbnails next to my keyboard, and I started typing them up in script form and giving the script to Corey instead of giving the thumbnails to Corey. Because <laughs> I was like, 
I'm an adult now. I really need to be actually writing comic scripts. And I had no idea what a comic script looked like. So I emailed Joe Casey, who I had talked to because I published a Code Flesh at Funkatron. And I was like, can, I, you just, can you just send me one of your comic scripts? Because I have no idea what these things look like. And he sent me one, and I've been copying that format ever since. And I've tweaked things here and there to make it my own or whatever. But, but all of my comic scripts are based on an, uh, an issue of Uncanny X-Men that Joe Casey, uh, formatting-wise, that Joe Casey wrote. Do you ever go back and still do thumbnails? you ever sending... Every now and then I'll do like a thumbnail for a cover or, you know, if my description for a panel is uh, extremely nonsensical and hard to follow, I'll be like, no, it's just, it's kind of like this. And then every now and then there've been times, and this hasn't happened recently, but like when I was at Marvel and stuff, I would get something back from an artist that would be like, this page is impossible to draw. There's no way I can make this work from the angles you're asking for. And I'd be like, no, 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 you got to put the heads here and then they're done. I'd send it to him and they'd go. Oh, okay, that makes sense. There were little things like that. We're like they couldn't they couldn't figure out how I wanted the balloons to be placed. So they were like, This is gonna be unreadable when it comes out. And I was like, No, 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 just make sure it's like this. So every now and then I do little thumbnails, but right. not not regularly. Because I'm lazy. But now you are somebody who drew. Yeah. <laughs> right. And have a sense of page layout and stuff. So when you're choosing artists, and outside of Paul as a seta, everybody every other artist you've worked with sort of came out of nowhere. For the most part. Maybe. Yeah, I guess to a certain extent. I mean, I Tony, Corey, sure. Ryan had done like three things before. Yeah. Jason Howard sort of hadn't done anything. That's sort of the list, right? I mean, there's little, you know, Mark Englert. Okay. Right? Sure. I'm just, <laughs> is this, is this giving you too much credit? I'm just no, saying. No, I like, guess it's, I guess, yeah, I guess, I don't know. But you, I mean, I don't know. It was like, it was basically a message board. Like most of those guys. It was Pencil Jack, uh, right? Well, like, so Tony and I met in seventh grade. Right. People know that. So I, I knew him. And, and honestly, I've told this to, to many writers. Like, I would not have been able to get where I was going as fast as I got if I didn't know Tony because Tony was a friend that I could say, hey, let's do a comic together. And we did a comic together. Any other writer trying to start out goes to a stranger and says, hey, would you like to do a comic with me? And, and anybody who's half talented online probably gets emailed from comic book writers like every day. You know, right. oh, I've oh, gotten yeah. emails like that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you horn, want to do gotten. a comic with this guy. I have no idea if you're an idiot. I have no <laughs> idea if you're a good writer. I've never read anything you've done. Like, I have no idea if you're a crook. Like, I have no right. idea, like, who this person is. You and know? vice versa. A writer could be right. approaching an artist who's a complete flake and a disaster. That's the other side of things, <laughs> yeah. which I have experienced uh, a lot. So then, but so then there's this message board. There was a wizard message board that they shut down. And when they shut down, all of the artists from this wizard message board went to the place called Pencil Jack. And Scotty Young and Mark Brooks also posted there, but I never worked with them. But EJ Sue, Mark Englert, Corey, Ryan. Matt Roberts. Okay. Ryan did not. Oh, really? Ryan was later. Okay. I found him on his website. But Matt Roberts, who's doing Manifest Destiny, he did some okay. stuff in Battle Pope. They were all on this message board. And... When when Tony started slowing down on Battle Pope and I needed to get like fill in artists, I would just go on there and be like, "Hey, I do this book called Battle Pope. You want to do some pages?" And they'd go, "Yeah, because because you're published and right. you can get me published. Yeah. Like no one else that talks to me can guarantee that I'm getting published. I could be like, your book will be on shelves in June. Let's <laughs> do this." And uh, and I was just snatching guys out of that message board. So it was kind of luck more than anything. But but so you yeah. don't have a specific eye for talent. Well, I mean, I think that <laughs> I think that I I don't know. Like I can recognize what's shitty and what's not. Yeah. You know. That's a but that's yeah. a skill. I guess. And then it's all a matter of taste though, right? 
It, 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 it's it's yeah. definitely a matter of taste. There have been many uh, Sean Makowitz. I'll give him Sean Makowitz and Rob Liefeld. Both of them have. There have been particular artists where they've been like, "This guy is so awesome," and I'm like, "I really just do not see it." And it'll be like. Two months later, they'll do something, and I'll be like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And Makowitz will be like, yeah, that's that guy I told you to hire two months ago. And you were like, this guy sucks. And I'm like, man, I didn't see it. So there, there's, I, I, I certainly have a blindness to certain art styles where it like takes me a while to recognize how we great all do. they are. But sure. Science dog. Yes. There have been two one-shots? Or am I uh, two one-shots that were collected into a hardcover. Right. So those stories, Corey Walker draws them. They look awesome. Yes. They're very cool. It's an adventure story. Dog-headed dude. Yes. In Invincible, it's a comic that is being read. Yes. It's a comic that exists in the Invincible universe, and then you tell these stories on the side. Is that... Obviously, you were going to pitch it originally as its own thing. Right. Are those one-shot stories that the kind of content you were going to do with Science Dog, or... Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, the the first three or four pages are actually the first three or four pages of what would have been Science Dog issue one back in the day. Okay. But yeah, we pitched it to Image, and first they were like, no one wants a comic with a talking dog. I saw that Corey did the Super Patriot pinup in Savage Dragon, I think it was like 93 or something. He draws a good Super Patriot. You guys should do a Super Patriot miniseries. And so then I went to Corey, and I was like, they don't like Science Dog. But they want us to do the Super Patriot miniseries, and I think we should do it. And he was like, if you promise me that if we do the Super Patriot miniseries, we're still going to do Science Dog. Because I want to do Science Dog. And I was like, I promise you, nothing will come between you and I doing Science Dog after we do Super Patriot. And then after we did Super Patriot, I found out they were launching the new Image superhero line. Right. That had like Clockmaker, Dominion, Venture, uh, Venture and Firebreather. Yeah. And so I was like, I want to be a part of that. And so I was able to talk Corey into like, no, you know, let's, let's, they still don't want a talking dog. Not, not into the talking dogs right now. Let's do a cool superhero book. And so we sat down and uh, the two of us tried to come up with what we think would be the coolest superhero book right. ever. And so that's what, that's what became Invincible. And then because we never did Science Dog, I came up with that bit that like Invincible is a comic book reader. And what comic does he read? That one I'll never do. Science Dog. <laughs> and then in 25, when we introduced Science Dog as like uh, like an alien comes to Mark right. in the form of Science Dog to like appeal to his like That's sense right. of nostalgia to bring him out to the planet to meet his dad. And in the backup of 25, which was a big anniversary issue, that's where we did the first Science Dog 12-page story. And the idea there was that, you know, Corey was not the fastest artist on the block. And so I was like, aside from all the other stuff we're doing, let's do a 12 page science dog story in the back of every 25th issue of Invincible. So 25, 50, 75, 100, so on. And the fun thing for me to do with that story was I would write 12 pages with no idea where it goes next or what I'm going to do in four years when the next anniversary issue comes. And so the stories that are in 25, 50, and 75, like I would basically, as it was nearing issue 50, I would read that 12-page story and go, all right, what can I do now? Like, where can I go here? And then when we did the one in 75, I was like, let's just wrap this up. And so we ended up wrapping it up before Invincible 100 and putting out that hardcover. Up. Yeah. But uh, it's funny. I'm actually pretty proud of that story. Like it actually kind of, I don't know. I think it's I think it's kind of cool. It kind of holds together, even though it was written over the course of yeah. twelve years or whatever. There's like, there's like heart to it. There's like 
I like to say I like to say it's a it's an entertaining level of depression. Yeah, there's like pathos <laughs> with science sure. dog. Sure. So, do you see a time where talking dogs will be in vogue, and science dog will make its finally its its splash on the world that doesn't even know they want it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's uh. it's certainly a fun project that. I hope that Corey and I can continue to come back to. I feel like Science Dog and Super Dinosaur should hang out. They should. They should. That's the same initials, SD and SD. Same initials. uh, They're uh, science-based. They're talking animals. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the phone with Jason Howard and been like, so the next issue of Science Dog, what we're doing is this. And then I'll be on the phone with Corey and be like, you know, when we get back to Super Dinosaur, we're going to... And and they're both like, yeah, the other one. (laughs) The other one, Robert, you moron. All right, last bit. Sure. I have self-published a book. I am doing a creator-owned, self-published book. Right. You are an advocate for creator-owned, do your thing, but it's hard. I know from my own experience, it is very difficult. It's very challenging. Definitely. Especially the promotion and marketing and sales of it. So what can you tell me (laughs) to keep me bolstered? Well, there's, uh, there's one thing that I say to everybody that I'll say. And then I want to go on a tirade. So the first thing is give up. <laughs> Seriously. Drop the mic and just walk away. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% serious. In your creator-owned endeavors, when it seems like they are not working, give up and pivot. And the reason for that is if I was still doing Battle Poop to this day trying to make it work, <laughs> let's just say I would be struggling. So... I gave up on Battle Pope. I did Tech Jacket. Tech Jacket didn't work so much. I gave up on Tech Jacket. I did Invincible. Invincible almost didn't work. I stuck with it a little bit. So it's very, very hard to know when to move on and when not to move on. Walking Dead hit. And and now I'm doing fairly well. And I, I see these creators that like have this thing that's like pretty cool. And it's great. And it's just not catching on. Like it's very hard to find an audience. And, you know, move on. Do a new thing, come back to the old thing, whatever. And I think there's so many great examples of this. You know, if Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey, if they had just come back and did Phonogram, it would have sold a certain level because Phonogram has an established fan base. And there are people out there who are like, made up my mind on Phonogram, not going to support that book. But I've heard about these creators. They seem really talented. I hear a lot of buzz about their names. When they do a new project, I will jump onto that new project. They do The Wicked and the Divine. Sales skyrocket. Sales way better than Phonogram. And, you know, there's that example in my career, Ed Brubaker's career, all these different people that do multiple creator-owned projects. Every project you do advertises your name and makes people try your next thing. So if you're moving from project to project fairly quickly and staying in the public eye and giving in another thing, giving people a sense that like you have more than one idea, you're a creator, they should be paying, they're paying attention to. Like, I think that that will build a career faster than say going, this battle poop thing's going to catch on. Right. People are going to recognize how great this thing is. All the eggs in one basket. Yeah. Yeah. I just keep plugging away at it. Diversify your portfolio. Right. Yeah. Right. But the other thing I wanted to say about creator-owned, just because I do pay attention to the internet and it bugs me, is I see this thing thrown around where people are like, ah, you know, these books, they're not really creator-owned, they're writer-owned, you know? And it's like, creator-owned means the creator of the book owns the book, you know? Like, if, if the letterer decides that he's going to create a concept 
and then produce a comic book on that concept with a bunch of different people, then that's a creator-owned book. If Todd McFarlane creates Spawn and then eventually hires a bunch of people to do that book, he hasn't turned his back on his creator-owned roots. He owns that book. If Stan Lee and Jack Kirby owned Marvel and nothing else was different, those would be creator-owned books because the creators of those books own those books. You know, like it just, it really bugs me when people are like, like, I, I feel like over time, the definition of creator owned has become muddled to where people think it's some kind of creative co-op where everyone that works on the book should be an owner of the book. And it's like, I just don't think like, that's, I guess a fine thing to do if you want to do that, but that's not what creator owned was intended to be. And it's not really what the definition should be in my opinion. I think that gets to people parsing the definition of creator, right? Right. Like, who created this thing? Creator is a term that is used to also define a person who works on comics. Right. So, like, yes. So, for example, in the the case of Outcast, like, it was created by Robert Kirkman. Right. Not Robert Kirkman and Paul Zaceta. Sure. Which is perfectly fine because Paul Zaceta is hired to work on this book, and I've spoken to him, and he's fine. And, like, I think that there's, there's also a difference between creator and owner. You know, yes. like Ryan Otley owns a significant portion of Invincible. Well, that's what I was going to say. Because he's done a shit ton of issues of Invincible. But I'm not going to say Ryan Otley was a creator of Invincible right. because Ryan Otley didn't even know about Invincible when I asked him to draw the uh, the eighth issue. But as so, I, was, I was saying, there's there's that parsing of the definition of creator, right? But the word owned is in there, right? So somebody owns it. So, for example, Ant was created by that guy who created Ant. But Larson bought it. <laughs> yes. So Larson owns Ant. A sound purchase. <laughs> we will not, you know, whatever. But he owns it. I love me some Eric Larson. I can say these things. Now, would you call Ant a creator-owned comic? Probably not. I don't know. Well, yeah. Now that's we're that's definitely territory. A, now we're getting into a very strange territory. It's like Angela is not a creator-owned character anymore because <laughs> Neil Gaiman got the ownership of that. That's and was like, weird. I am a staunch supporter of creators' rights, so I am going to take control of this creation and immediately sell it to this corporation. <laughs> that, uh, now we're in dangerous territory. Probably. Robert, thank Whatever. you so much. This was awesome. I hope <laughs> you enjoyed you. it. I hope I came close to the enjoyment of a speakeasy with Paul Tompkins. I had a good time. Awesome. I had a good time. We talked about better stuff. Okay. I didn't feel like I was just talking about Walking Dead and or me by extension the entire time. So awesome. that's good. I, I look forward to doing the math on how much of this conversation was Walking Dead and putting a percentage number on it and letting you know. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Because I got nothing else to do. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. It's been a lot of fun. All right, so the question I have is who if you if you did not enjoy that, which if you didn't and you stuck around for two hours, I'm very impressed. But I guess people hate listen. Who seemed most off base? The guy who's achieved great success or the guy who hosts this podcast? That's a probably a question I shouldn't even be asking, but you can answer it by emailing me. At stuff said at gmail.com. You can comment on this episode at the website, stuffsaidshow.com, which is where you can also find the show notes. Robert mentioned them in the episode. I, I put up pictures. I put up video. I put up links. 
Go there. There's a ton of stuff. You'll see my photos of his .5 slabbed Walking Dead and some other goodies. I'm also on Twitter at Greg Schiegel, G-R-E-G-G-S-C-H-I-G-I-E-L. The show is on iTunes. In addition to StuffSaidShow.com, please go there and give the show five stars and leave a review. If you want a suggestion of what to write in terms of review, write better than O'Charlie's. Better than O'Charlie's would be an awesome review that let me know you listened to this episode. Speaking of episodes, I mentioned at the top of the show, my other podcast, Cruising Together. Please check that show out. It is fun. It is funny. It is uh, entertaining. It is not nearly as dense as Stuff Said shows are. And that show is also on iTunes. My book, again, picks One Weirdest Weekend. It's an original graphic novel. Consider checking it out. It is something I'm very proud of. I worked really hard on it. It is available at PixComic.com or your local comic shop. Ask them to order it. Please. That would be awesome. If you're listening to this show, uh, how about a coupon code for the book? If you type in Kirkman, K-I-R-K-M-A-N, you will get 15% off the paperback or digital version or paperback digital combo at PixComic.com. Last bits of business. In the show you just heard, when I thought of the name Bonnie Raitt and I said a little birdie told me that wasn't a real bird, that was Corey Walker who was in the room working while we were talking. He was awesome and held up a little sign that said Bonnie Raitt so that we weren't on that tangent for any longer than we needed to be. Stuff said is also part of the Acme Wave Projector network of podcasts available at acmewaveprojector.com. That network includes the Acme cast from the folks down at acmecomics.com, where I will be for free comic book day this year, May 2nd in Greensboro, North Carolina. The theme music for Stuff Said is provided and performed by Craig Chin. You can learn more about him at rudeanagrams.com. For more about me and my podcasts and my book and all my other stuff, Go to HatterEntertainment.com, H-A-T-T-E-R Entertainment.com. That's about all the stuff I have left to say. See you next time.